One, two, three, clap. All right. <laughs> Good morning, James. Good morning to you. <laughs> <laughs> How are things in Chicago? Things are splendid. Are they? They are, I, I don't know if you can hear, but oh. I have a lovely burrito. Oh, from where? Burrito. <laughs> I'm going to open it and partake of this divulgence. But where is it from? From Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> the finest of establishments. Oh, I miss Burger King. There's only like one down here and it's like, it's kind of out of the way. Yeah. And then you can't find them anywhere else. You've just got like 500 Whataburgers, mm. which I don't even, I think they serve breakfast, mm. but I will never go there for breakfast. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. You know what just... I had for breakfast? What did you have? A child. <laughs> <laughs> You're down to one, eh? <laughs> down to one. The diet's going great. Good. Yes. Uh, Alright, <laughs> I need to create a document here that for for notes. Alright, because you this do that. Is just goddamn I'm going to describe my juicy burrito. <laughs> Alright. With eggs so fine and fluffy, even the <laughs> Babylonian kings would have leapt at my feet to partake of this establishment. You just got one? Uh, what? You just got one burrito? Yeah. Well, I had three, but two of them are MIA. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way. Yep. 1,600 calories. No are better way to start the day. <laughs> and you know what's really discomforting about that? What? Is I'm in your brother's closet, and it is hot as balls in here. Yeah. And so I took off my shirt so I wouldn't be sweating through it for the next oh, three hours. Oh, God. But the problem with that is I can just... I'm eating this burrito and I'm looking down at my rolls of fat. Just like... <laughs> it looks like a landslide of mud, but white mud because I am pasty white. My stomach has not seen the light of day since nearly seven fortnights ago. Holy fuck! <laughs> it's bad. It's real bad. Is it really hot up there? Yes. <laughs> okay, for Christ's sake, I'm marking this. <laughs> Go turn on the air conditioning. No, no, the rest of the house is, like, really nice and cool. <laughs> it's just your brother's closet. <laughs> oh, my God. It's Maybe fine. you could find a fan or something. <laughs> it's fine. I'll just melt here like the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm glad my parents aren't home. Yeah. <laughs> just a sweaty, half-naked fat boy <laughs> rolling down the stairs. Hey, guys! <laughs> You want a burrito? <laughs> Here Too I bad, am. I ate them. <laughs> now you'll have to eat me. <laughs> I'm high in trans fats. <laughs> yes, that is. Ugh. Coffee. All right. Well, Should we start the show? I've still got half a burrito. Okay, I'm gonna set this down. Well, I'll deal with that later. Uh, <laughs> All right. Yeah, we should probably shut the show. Okay. <laughs>
right? And they have no idea what the hell happened. Oh. Money has stopped coming home, right? Yeah. They've stopped hearing from, from their husband and father, right? Yeah. I mean, this is not fucking good. Well, <clears throat> when people disappear in Russia, honey, they're not coming home. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. Be not who thy desireth to be, but be who your heart desireth to be. Where'd you get that? My ass. <laughs> That's just as good as Pinterest. We hope to keep our <laughs> listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events of these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have John Bellingham and Gabriele De Annunzio. The second one's made up. Has to be. It is. Uh, I, I'm telling you, it is. <laughs> you made up this person for this episode? I did. Yes. I'm just not surprised. And I, I have to I have to admit something here, James. Oh no, what did you do? John Bellingham is the guy I researched. Uh-huh. And comparatively speaking, I was lazy as fuck. Ah. Mm. Because there is so much around this guy that I just, I like got into him like, oh, haha, he's a person who did a thing once, and then you're like reading about it, and you're like, we kind of need, like, 200 years of historical context for this story to make oh, any sense. <laughs> and then I just didn't do it. Oh, <laughs> so, dear. <laughs> so you'll have to fill in the blanks with what you know about the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Well, the best of times. All right. All right. Yes. Shall we go down to the history lab? Let's go. Woo! And there's no trailer. There's just a picture of Danny DeVito. <laughs> what the hell is that? I don't know what it's that is. It's a bush baby. It's a bush baby. Yeah. Danny DeVito, you are a bush baby. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, see. Shall we write a trailer? I probably should. All right. So two men. Yeah. One up. Uh, Beller of hams. Oh, God. Is this, <laughs> is this it? <laughs> One uh, ver, ver, vicious killer. The other, a... What did Gabriel D'Annunzio do? Oh, what did he not do? Um, uh, the other, a guy who did fucking everything. Yeah, that's pretty good. And was also a fascist? Um, the father of fascism. That's a shitty thing to have on your record. <laughs> no, well, it gets better. Uh, I found a much better analogy than just the uh, than just father and son. Uh, <laughs> oh God! We'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. So, yeah. I'm just this episode is bite. a prime example mm. of the Doppler effect. It's the hash browns that really tie it together. 
We don't even need to do a trailer. No, I think this is, this is pretty good. Oh, God. Oh, this mic picks up every morsel of saliva just slapping oh, across my lips. When I was eating my sandwich last week, I knew. I knew. I was like, this is going to be so noisy and disgusting. Thought about removing it, and then I just didn't. <laughs> good. The true millennial way. Oh, did you see the article I posted on Twitter? I just got the notification, but I haven't read it yet, but it looked beautiful. It is is insane. (laughs) It's absolutely fucking insane. I've never seen anyone reach so far. (laughs) And it's not satire? It's not satire. Oh, no. No, it's it's legitimately an article about how millennials are so, like, woke, they refuse to consume mayonnaise. (laughs) They prefer the sur- the the spicier and more foreign tastes of sriracha. <laughs> did yeah. you ever did you ever see that uh that meme and it said on the top half it says white culture now and it showed all these vikings and the bottom half is white culture now or or I'm sorry I messed it up. God damn it. <laughs> White, white culture, culture then is the Vikings. White culture now is just this guy who's saying mayonnaise is spicy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because mayonnaise is not spicy. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Uh, look, I know you think of yourself as spicy, but I still think of you as mayonnaise. All I'm thinking right now is that I am. I gotta lose some weight. <laughs> God! <laughs> Speaking of mayonnaise, my stomach is like... Harry mayonnaise. Oh, God. Yeah, we'll just stop just, there. I want to stop envisioning you in my brother's closet. <laughs> half naked and eating a burrito. <laughs> the carpet is becoming like this marshland from all my sweat. It's... I'm sorry, Aaron's brother. I am... <laughs> You don't want to come back here ever. Um, oh my god! It is it is a mess. <laughs> I can't even believe this shit. It's like, hmm. oh my god. Yeah, I can't. That's it. But um, why don't you carry the the conversation for a second? Because I'm going to finish off this juicy, delectable. Burrito. I just want to describe to the listeners the image they should have in their heads right mm-hmm. now. There's a tiny closet. Mm. Uh, it's not tiny necessarily. It's a, it's like a walk-in closet, but it's like a square, right? Yeah, and it's there's like pictures seven of seven by five or something. Yeah, there's pictures of Jesus in there, and there's all kinds of random shit because my brother no longer lives there. Mm-hmm. Just imagine there's a chair with a mic on it, mm-hmm. and a hairy, sweaty, bearded, balding, homeless guy <laughs> is sitting or lying down, probably. Mm. On on this fucking shag carpet, sweating profusely and consuming a Burger King burrito. <laughs> it is America. And he has a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. We're hmm. a fake show. We're a fake show. <laughs> yeah, we are. All right. Well, All right. <laughs> I could check that off on my bucket list. Two men, one a vicious killer, the other a guy who did fucking everything, and was also the father of fascism. This episode is a prime example of the Doppler effect. So, James, mm-hmm. t- 
tell me. Mm. If you had to build a business, what mm-hmm. would be your shitty product, and how would you sell it? Ah, okay. I would, uh, my business would be called, uh, Magic Carpers and Carpet Baggers. <laughs> Magic Carpers? <laughs> Carpers, yeah. Like it, the, like the Pokemon? Well, what do you call someone who owns a, a car, a Magic Carpet? It's a carpenter. Oh. It's like a carpenter, but it's shorter. I don't know. A Magic carper. Carpers and the Carpet Baggers. Anyway, it. what it would be. It would be, it'd be like a travel agency, um... So just a shitty office on the side of some dying strip mall. And you could come in, and I would have a, a multitude of magic carpets. You could take your pick and, of course, pick your destination as well. And then I would have someone secretly lying under the carpet who would raise it up with his feet in his hands. And then I'd have two other people run at you and throw glitter in your face. And then I would sneak up behind you and steal your wallet. <laughs> That's a great model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. It'll, it'll really shine. Nice. Yeah. So tell me, what would you do for a business? I would have a business called, wait for it, shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, the the um, the shitty product that I would sell at shirt is, get this, my shitty shirt. <laughs> and I would sell it to a person on the street corner for a couple of bucks. And then I would go, yes, to you, of course. And then I would be shirtless, Mm. which would suck because then I couldn't go into Burger King. But, but I could still go through the drive-thru. Oh. Oh. And so I would use that couple of bucks to pay for my own, very own breakfast burrito. And then I wouldn't be so damn hungry. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I'm hungry right now. You know, sir, I got to give you, I got to give you credit where credit is due. Businesses mm. these days, they don't think everything through, but you, sir, have thought it all out. Oh yeah, through. I know. <clears throat> Bye. Yes. Yes. So, good. We'll just wait here for someone to steal that idea, and then we can sue them. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <clears throat> Until then, computer, please bring up John Bellingham and Gabriel de Anuncio. I think. <laughs> So, Aaron, tell me, what is John Bellingham best known for? Uh, John Bellingham is best known for assassinating Prime Minister Spencer Percival in 1812. We had a Prime Minister named Spencer? No, we never had a Prime Minister. It was in the UK. Mm. Yeah, and his name was Spencer Percival. That's a great English name. And he deserves an episode of his own, which ah. kind of sucks, because I didn't realize that until I got about halfway through, yep. and then I was like, oh shit, I should have done Spencer Percival, because he's a really, <laughs> he's a really, like, complex guy. There's a lot of shit nice. surrounding his life. But um, no, we're going to kill him off before we dive into him? I know. We'll get to him again later, because he really was a pretty significant dude okay, in a lot of ways. Cool. Um, so it kind of sucks that I didn't know anything about... Oh god, coffee. <clears throat> Sorry. Wow. kind of sucks that... Should I mark that? I should mark that. Right, if you guys haven't seen it on Twitter, we posted a bingo sheet slash drinking game that you can play along with the mm-hmm. show. And um, you should have two spaces filled already, if I'm remembering correctly, because I said we'll get to that later. Oh, wait, that's not a real slot. That's just what someone said we should put in. Never oh, mind. Yeah. Never mind. No, we, we have. We also have the, uh, the Doppler effect already, so you can put oh, that one down. Oh, yep. Good. Uh, and now you have the coffee thing and digestion. Let me think here. 
I think that's about it. Did you include on that chart me irritatingly saying, okay? <laughs> Did no, you? I should have, no? though. Oh, you should have. Okay. Just for we that both... one reviewer. I forget forget the name. Jesus. I, I just... I just don't look at people's names anymore because well, I don't they're care. They're just numbers to us, not They're names. just numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not which true. is why our fan interaction is at an all-time high. <laughs> uh, we've got a special production coming out later on, uh, basically dedicated to just one of our fans, and you will see. Holy you will shit. see. Shit. Yeah. Is you don't know about it? I thought I told you. You did. I'm just trying yeah. to act surprised so that our, <laughs> our listeners have a character to relate to. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> See, you're the master. You're the master puppeteer here. I am a literary so, master. It's time for you to ask me what John Bellingham looked like. John Bellingham? No, fuck what you. What did he I... look like? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. This is this is what I came up with. All right. <clears throat> he is a weird-looking son of a bitch. Mm. <laughs> That's it. I mean, what? what? <laughs> That's I mean, how you open up every description. No, not really. Are you calling me a hack fraud? No. Oh, that'd be hypocritical. Okay, well, I'll, I'll continue then because All there right. is more. Oh. There is more. He's got a nose big enough to snort a line of guinea pigs. Oh. <laughs> Are you laughing yet? What? <laughs> Oh. His ears kind of look like they could snap off and snap back on. Uh, he has the eyes of a king, and he also appears to have a bandage on his neck, probably because he was hanged. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> nope, just because that was the style of the day. Oh, okay. The old yeah. neck band-aid. Oh. Yeah, little little neck band-aid. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So what was uh, Gab Gabriel de, de Nuncio best known for? Well, real James? quick on that, I, I I looked up the pronunciation because I oh. have zero pronunciation. Oh, you looked up the pronunciation, did you? Put down another tile, everyone. <laughs> James yep. just fucked up pronouncing pronounce. Pronunciation is okay, the yes. correct way to say it. it. <laughs> From its Latin roots. All right. Pro all right. and ciation. Which, uh, it's really complicated, but we won't get into that shit. James anyway. is a linguist. <laughs> <laughs> I am. So, the YouTube video that was 12 seconds long told me that it's Gabriele, or Gabrielli, mm. which is the Italian way of saying it. But I'm just going to call him Ga Gabriel. Oh. Uh, because that's who he's named after. He's named after the angel Gabriel, which we'll get into. Gabriele. Yeah, but Gabriele, uh, it just makes yes. me want pasta, I'll be honest. And oh. <laughs> that's after three burritos. That God is why I am obese. <laughs> anyway, so it's... Wait, are you actually getting fat up there? <laughs> Haven't you felt the axis of the world <laughs> shift slightly northward? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> the northern hemisphere is slowly sinking You were the chosen one. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. All right, so what did uh, Gabriel D'Annunzio best look, or best look like? Jesus Christ. What did he look like? <laughs> what did he? What is he best known for? Oh, did I already ask you that? Oh, oh fuck yeah! What is he best known for? I'm to Sorry, skip my art. All right, <laughs> he is best known for being a horny Nazi poet. I shit you not. <laughs> Those three things in a row belong in Wolfenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, what did this horny Nazi poet look like? Well, one of Gabriele's lovers wrote about what he looked like upon first <laughs> meeting him. And Sorry. her description is so good, I can't add anything. And so she said, 
But there before me was a frightful gnome with red-rimmed eyes and no eyelashes, no hair, greenish teeth, bad breath, the manners of a fraudster, and the reputation, nevertheless, for being a ladies' man, and a man who was, to say the least, ungrateful to the ladies. What the fuck? <laughs> so she, she slept with him? Uh, I don't know. Um, she, she was his lover, you said. Well, I, I don't know. I Did they just have... cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't you want to cuddle with a gnome? A frightful gnome? No. <laughs> she was... He pursued her at one point. I don't know if they became lovers. There are so many women that he pursued and also uh, became lovers with. I, I just don't know at this point. It's just too many women. All right, fair enough. So we've got a very prolific gnome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And John Bellingham. Who's speaking of? We should go into John Bellingham's early life. Off we go. Off we go. So John Bellingham was born in 1769, and we're not sure what day, and we're not <laughs> sure what month. Of course. <laughs> the point is, it was the late 1700s, and nobody wrote down what their kids were doing. <laughs> right. Especially not in London, because nobody could fucking write. <laughs> now, remember our episode on Jack Shepard? I do. That master thief who lived in London. Mm, mm -hmm. That should tell you a little bit more about what the situation is like in that city. So pretty shitty. Yeah, pretty shitty in the city, baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of, what do you remember specifically about London during this time period, James? I remember it almost being as bad... <laughs> I'm saying this like I was there. Well, I was there, but that's a different story. Uh, it was almost as bad as modern-day Chicago. Oh! Uh, just pollution... Literally everywhere. Yes. The streets are black. The skies are black. Uh, and pretty... The all-seeing eye sits atop the Bruce Willis building or whatever the fuck it is. The Bruce Willis? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the Willis Tower. <clears throat> no, no, it's, it's the, the Sears, Sears Tower. Tower. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. I agree. Old people are going to be like, it's the Sears Tower. And young people are going to be like, I don't know what the fuck to call it because names are relevant, aren't they? They don't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the millennial way. And it we're is. fucking over mayonnaise by doing that. Yes. <laughs> mm. Goddamn millennials, bro. Goddamn mm -hmm. them. So, uh, yeah. As far as we know, though, John Bellingham didn't exist until he was 14. Got it. <laughs> uh, that's a lie. We oh. just know basically nothing about him until he started an apprenticeship as a jeweler in 1783. <clears throat> uh, but it was only two years of that before he decided to live a life at sea by becoming a midshipman on a ship, believe it or not, called the Hartwell, which was bound for China. Good. And then okay. there was a mutiny or some oh, shit. shit. And I'm not sure in what way John Bellingham was involved, but the mutiny ended up working really well for the mutineers because when they got the ship, they promptly crashed it into the fucking land. <laughs> <laughs> and it sank. They somehow beached it and sank oh. it. <laughs> It's like, oh shit, we went too far into the land, like, back up, and they somehow did it, and then the boat sank because they crashed into the land. Priceless. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's from all the sources I could find. It's like, oh yeah, they beached the ship and then sank it, which, like, what the fuck. Okay. <laughs> uh, and from what I can tell, it was not intentional, so there's that. Oh, uh-huh. So anyway, uh, after this, John Bellingham just vanishes from history again because he was a fucking nobody. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and uh, there were murmurs of him here and there. Uh, there's a rumor and some evidence that he started a tin factory that failed. 
Um, he probably worked as a clerk a clerk in some like accountant firm or some shit in the late 1790s mm-hmm. but the point is he's just nobody right at this point he's yeah. just a fucking nobody hmm. um and where things really began to move in john bellingham's life was at around 1800 <clears throat> mm-hmm. he started working as an agent for trade companies mm. um both importing and uh, from and exporting goods to russia mm-hmm. and he's are you awake yeah, I am. Uh, You're just baking. to and fro from Russia. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> he's a traitor. Right, uh, but he's ma- mainly doing this from a place called um, <clears throat> Archangelsk, <laughs> um, which is just Archangel with oh. a ska at the end. <laughs> oh, okay, it, Archangel uh, in Russia. Archangel in Russia, uh-huh. but it's Arch- Archangelsk. Mm. Arch- Archang- Arch- I looked up the pronunciation. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Archangelsk. I don't know. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> it seems here that he found a little success here in Arkhangelsk. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, because he like he kept it up for a few years before going back to London. Um, he got kind of a good start, so he became a broker, got married to his wife Mary in 1803. Um, Was every woman of that age named Mary? Uh, yes. Because that's what you do with them, you just marry them? It's, yeah. Yeah. That- Probably named after... Uh, 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 what, what's the uh, Our Lady Mary or whatever? Um, the mother the of our Church. Christ child. There's a there's there's still the Protestant and Catholic problem going on in in, in England at this time. Ah, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would go more into that because Spencer Percival was like directly involved with that shit in a lot of ways, um, which made me feel kind of like shitty after I finished because it's like a. <sighs> I wanted to talk more about it, but I simply ran out of time this week. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he has some success. He gets married in London, but the next year he's back in Russia working in exports again. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I know that's boring and not that detailed, uh, but we have a long way to go yet. And we're going to stop here because fuck a five pound burrito today. Oh, oh, no. That's an order. <laughs> <laughs> I already have. <laughs> no, I, I think they fucked you, James. They did. They did. Your sweaty, shitty body. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's like a pillow made out of (laughs) cellulose. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So shall we move into Gabriel Donunzio's early life? Gabriel Donunzio. I'm mispronouncing it on purpose. I hope you know. I know. I know. All right. So yeah, let's move into it. Here we go. Gabriel... De Annunzio was born in the township of Pescara, Italy, on March 12, 1863. And legend states that Gabriele de Annunzio was not actually his birth name, but instead was Gaetano de Annunzio. Uh, oh. The legend goes on to say that he was later given the name Gabriele because of his angelic looks. I don't care. No. <laughs> Uh, His angelic looks? I thought he was a gnome. (laughs) Which mythical creature is this man? (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. Okay. A dwarf. Okay. Okay. But anyway, his real name is Gabriele. Uh, So legend disproved. Yes. Uh, So waste of time. (laughs) Hey, I'm trying to fill up for all the time you wasted and didn't use on actual research. Hey, I'll have you know that mm-hmm. we are already 30 minutes into this thing and we're just getting into the second guy's early life. So, I don't think we're going to have a problem with length, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great opening All line. All right. 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Then you just, you know, pull out your yardstick. <laughs> yeah. We're not gonna 30 have a problem minutes isn't too small. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> enough with the dick jokes. Oh, God. We're better than... No, we're not. Anyway. So we're Gabriel not. was born to wealthy parents who quickly realized that their son was more intelligent and a faster learner than his peers. How about that? For example, he had mastered six languages by the age of 16. <laughs> Holy shit. Which is pretty good. Yeah. So they oh, sent God. him off to school in Tuscany. Uh, and it was here that Gabriel, at the age of 16, published his first book, a collection of poetry called Premovere. So, f what is that? First Truths? Something like that. Primo, first, prime, that's prime, first, very, very, very Varus! <laughs> yeah. I laughed into my mug. I heard that. Oh! It's like you were It's a perfect time to there. do my Bane impression. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I already did that later. Before. Not doing it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But did we do that in the fake episode that we never released? I don't I remember. I don't remember either. Yeah. yeah. We have fake episodes that we've never released, everybody. Ultra fake. And the longer <laughs> the longer we hold on to them, the more irrelevant they become. <laughs> they were never relevant to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Alright, so he writes this book of poetry. Yeah, and he publishes it at 16. And uh, the public starts to take notice of our boy Gabriel, and he started gathering kind of a, a fan group of supporters and admirers. Uh, at 16? Yeah, at 16. That's um, amazing. So that's, that's healthy for a... A narcissist boy. <laughs> we'll get into his narcissism later. How exciting. All right. Yeah. In 1881, Gabriel entered the University of Rome La Sapienza. And here he continued to write, read, and also joined many prominent literary groups. It was also during this time in college that Gabriel heard of a little thing called Italian irredentism. Okay. Which basically means that all Italians and Italian speakers should live together in the same oh, country. That's familiar. Yeah. A uh, little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, reminding me a little bit of, uh, of our boy, uh, um, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Goebbels? Uh, no, like, uh, wasn't it Hitler who was, like, all about getting the German-speaking people? Yeah, well, yeah. Same? Yeah, and Bismarck a bit too, but that was that was more national. That's true. Yeah, that was very Bismarck. But yeah. of course, the moment you align something with Hitler, it's like almost like nobody holds those ideas. But no, nope, yeah. they all held them. Yeah. So for what that's worth. Yep. Anyway. So so Gabriel starts kind of kind of buying into this idea of all, right. all the Italians living together, and that'll Delicious. come up later. Okay. But anyway, during this time, he was also busy writing, and he wrote okay. various... Sorry. <laughs> what, what did you say? Sorry. I'm, I'm doing the okay thing again. I gotta quit. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Carry on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so he wrote various poems, short stories, and a collection of short stories, and his writings had a range of topics, but some of the more prominent types focused on his home, youthfulness, power, the Italian landscape, and pleasant things like that. Uh, but Gabriel also had a second type of writing style, uh, which came a bit later, and this type focused on things such as hedonism, sex, sexual power, and all sorts of perversions. Oh, so Anton LaVey! <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, thus, critics and the public were not too sure what to make of him as a writer and a poet at first. Most people had enjoyed his early works because they had been somewhat harmless. But then came the second wave of writing that were super sexy. Oh, shit. Yeah. 
And some critics lamented that a promising writer had basically become a sad pervert, while others said that his <laughs> critique of traditional morality was brilliant and for bringing life back into the scene of modern Italian literature. Oh, fuck off! <laughs> 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 yeah, we've heard that before. But remember, it is the the late 1800s, so... Right. Yeah, sex is a no-no. <laughs> no, I'm just... All I'm saying is... All I'm saying is those critiques are the same shit oh, you hear absolutely. from critics. You've heard it <laughs> no. for centuries. You've got some who are like, oh, he's basically a sad pervert now. And then there are others who are like, he's brilliant! He's bringing life back to the sea. He's a barbarian. He's dark and <laughs> disgusting. And, you know, like, that's just deep because fuck traditional morality. Yep. Anyway. So, yeah, I, I'm, I've read those criticisms again and again and again, and I'm just like, fuck right off. Yeah, exactly. Come up with something yeah, and I, new I included for that bit for you because I knew you would go on a rant about it. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> you, you know me too well, James. Him. You just right. know me too well. I do. All right. <laughs> so soon thereafter, Gabriel decided to get involved with journalism. He joined mm. the staff of the Tribuna, but under a pseudonym, Duca Minimo. Uh, and That'd all be during this. Ducha. Ducha. No, it's. Ducha Minimo. Yeah, yeah. But, but wait. Duca. My Nemo. My Nemo. Duca, Duca, my Nemo. I don't know. Um, what does that mean, though? Duca Minimo. Small Duke? Maybe. I don't fucking know anything. I, I <laughs> know zero Italian besides Mamma Mia and <laughs> spaghetti. Half-naked man sitting in a closet. <laughs> All right, carry on. <laughs> It's so good we're not a YouTube channel. That's all I have to say. <laughs> You're the reason we'll never start a YouTube That's channel. That's true. That's true. People would be at home and their screens would start to sweat. Because <laughs> my sweat would be so abundant that it would transfer through the sound waves of the internet. <laughs> Everyone's laptop screen would just develop instant love handles. <laughs> yeah. Hey, easier to hold, but... Yeah. <laughs> You can hold your laptop and eat a burrito at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's the James way. <laughs> yeah. All right, carry on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. So while he's a journalist, he's also continuing to write poetry. And then in 1889, he wrote his first novel, which in English is called Child of Pleasure. And the novel uh. follows a man and his two love interests with themes drawn strongly from decadentism which was an artistic and literary movement at the time that focused on the decadent. What does decadent mean, James? It means flavorful. Okay. <laughs> it means, like, too much. Slightly hedonistic. Gotcha. Decadent. Yeah, I've heard the phrase before. But, mm. uh, it's like... Uh, focusing on the surplus. <laughs> so oh, gotcha. Worst Instead of... Living on, living by your means or whatever, yeah. you just buy too much shit and do too much shit and drink too much shit. And Pretty much, yeah. Get upset about little things. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. great thing. Uh, he then published another novel, Giovanni Episcopo, in 1891, and this book didn't really have a Wikipedia page, so we'll move on to his third novel, <laughs> <laughs> The Intruder, which Ugh. was finished in 1892, and it's about a married couple who both cheat on each other. Interesting. Uh, and then he wrote another book, The Triumph of Death, in 1894, and then Le Virginie de Rocco in 1896, and Il Fuoco in 900. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And during this whole time, he's releasing a whole bunch of more poems. 
And unfortunately, most of these works I could find only in Italian, and there weren't many descriptions descriptions of them in English. But the the point is, our our boy is a writer, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. And much of the world, especially intellectual Europe, is praising his works. Uh, and today, he's still usually best remembered for being a writer and a poet. But just hold on to your pirate ship. Shit's about <laughs> to get real. Oh, God. Okay. That's the <clears throat> boring stuff. We just got through all, right. all the boring stuff. All right. Well, you made it as entertaining as you possibly could. And even though it was the shittiest five minutes of podcasting ever recorded, you yes. get a pass. You get a pass. Thank you. I'm being really hard on you today. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I I only live in sadness. <laughs> Are we going to end with another depression monologue? <laughs> Not this time. I had three Burger King Jr. burritos, and just like the commercials say, folks, those things will lighten up your day and lighten up your wallet, Burger King. Uh, <laughs> Jay, what he's saying, James is saying is that uh, he's a very happy, very thick boy. <laughs> <laughs> Never say that again. <laughs> Shall we go to John Bellingham's adult life? Uh, absolutely. Okay, so, <clears throat> when we left John Bellingham, he was being historically elusive and working in Russian exports, much like a certain U.S. president. Oh. I'm looking at you, Wilford Brimley. Oh. And by the way, <laughs> the next thing that happens is unclear as fuck. Oh, no. But I'm going to do my best to figure this out, even if it makes me look like a walnut, okay? Excellent. All right. So, <laughs> in the autumn of 1803, there's a ship named the Silier or something like that, uh, and it goes missing in the White Sea. Hmm. Uh, now, we're not exactly sure what the fuck happened here, um, but we don't know if it went missing or was stolen or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the owners of the ship filed a claim with their fucking insurance company, um, <laughs> basically seeking money because their ship got lost. Hmm. And the claim seems to have been denied, however, uh, as an anonymous letter was sent to the insurance company saying that the ship was actually sabotaged. Ooh. Uh, and from what I can figure out, a ship going missing without explanation is covered, but a ship that's been sabotaged is not covered because that's just ain't how this shirt uh, this shit works. Well, you, I'm thinking about shirts. You still. destroyed it yourself, so you shouldn't right. get any insurance money for that. Well, maybe. also, like if somebody else, you know, oh, got past your guards or whatever, or you weren't taking care of your ship and it got sabotaged, it's like, yo, that's not really. You're a bad investment for insurance companies, though. Exactly. Point, yeah. You're not. You're you're kind of like irresponsible with your ships. Yeah. But anyway, so the claim was denied. <clears throat> and the guy who filed the claim, and I know this is, like, lame or whatever, we're talking about insurance, but the guy who filed the claim was named Solomon Van Breenen, mm -hmm. um, and he somehow got the idea in his head that this fucker named John Bellingham was behind the sabotage letter. Huh. So, basically, he comes up with this accusation of that, like, John Bellingham owes him a debt of, like, almost 5,000 rubles. Oh, shit. Um, and Bellingham's like, I don't owe you shit, and he refuses right. to pay. Okay. Uh, because, like, there was no way that this guy could prove that Bellingham had written the letter, even sure, if he was suspicious. Or... Yeah. Right, right. Um, so then Bellingham attempted to sneak back to London on the first ship leaving, but his travel pass was revoked, and he couldn't leave Russia. Oh, shit. <laughs> and then he was put into prison. Oh, no. Just because of this accusation, and was left to rot for, like, a year. Wow. Uh, until he got out and headed to St. Petersburg. Now, remember, he has a wife and family in London. Yeah. Right? And they have no idea what the hell happened. Oh. Money has stopped coming home, right? Yeah. They've stopped hearing from, from their husband and father, right? Yeah. 
I mean, this is not fucking good. Well, <clears throat> when people disappear in Russia, honey, they're not coming home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we laugh, but that's just that's, that's just historically true. <laughs> So yeah, his family has no idea of what's become of their boy. Mm -hmm. So that that kind of sucks. Um, but he's like just desperately trying to get home, and he's not really helping himself though, because the first thing he does when he gets out of prison is he sort of gives into anger huh. and tries to get the governor general of that region impeached. Hmm. Um, you know, because he had to spend a year in prison for crimes that he may or may not have committed. I get that, yeah. Um, that's how I'm reading it anyway. I could be completely wrong, by the way. Sure. Um, the point is, we really don't have all the facts on this matter. It was, you know, the 1800s or whatever. Yeah. Um, not just, we weren't writing shit down all the time. Couldn't do and it. And it's in right. Russia. <laughs> and it's in Russia. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so, like, yeah. And also, it doesn't help that John Bellingham is still, technically speaking, a nobody. Yeah, yeah. Um, but not for long. Ooh. No, sir. Anyway, so it turns out that trying to get an official of a country you do not live in impeached is not always the brightest move. <laughs> so John Bellingham is thrown back in prison oh, no. for another three or four years. Jesus. <laughs> and then he was just let out into the streets, still with no permission to leave the country. Um, oh, God. Yeah, and he, so he still couldn't go home to his wife. So it's been like almost four or five years here. Yeah. And we still don't fucking know because we have no fucking papers. Right. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> this boy got so desperate that he personally appealed to the Tsar of Russia. Hmm. Uh, who actually approved his travel pass and let him go home. Oh, wow. So yay for the Tsar, I yeah. guess, right? Huh. Uh, so anyway, John Bellingham goes home, and he's fucking pissed, mm. this guy. He blames the government for allowing him to be a prison for so long, but they kind of shrug and say, yeah, or I should do this in like a... British. Yeah, you should. Uh, yeah, sorry about all the damages or whatever. I'm sorry, I can't fucking do this. <laughs> yeah, sorry about all that, but uh, we cut off diplomacy with Russia while you were there, so <laughs> no, we won't pay your damages. <laughs> Wait, what year is it? Uh, it's like 1811, I think, 1810. 1809, somewhere in there. Oh, okay. it's not clear. So it's just simply it's not before clear. Before the Crimean War, I was wondering if right. the Crimean War was. Going We're coming up to the 18, the War of 1812 here. So yeah, what that's worth. Um, but anyway, so Bellingham just isn't going to give up because like mm -hmm. he started with anger from the beginning and he's going to go out on the fucking anger. Uh, All right. But his wife is like, "Hey, I'm just glad you're home. Please don't pursue this." Yeah. So he doesn't. He goes back okay. to work. Good. Uh, well, in 1812, guess. and then actually he didn't drop the case. Oh, shit. <laughs> he just doubled down. Uh, oh. So he goes, it's amazing. All right, so he goes straight to the foreign office uh, to speak directly with a civil servant named Hill, Mr. Hill. Mm -hmm. We don't know his first name. Somebody out there probably knows his first name, but everywhere I found just that he spoke with a guy named Mr. Hill. And uh -huh. I think they wrote down his name because he's basically the guy who put the, you know, put set the... Uh, set the gasoline on fire, so to speak. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so he walks in and talks to this guy, Hill, and Hill says he's not going to give him a dime. He says, mm -hmm. basically, to John Bellingham's face, like, what are you going to do about it, bitch? Oh, shit. Like, that's, I mean, you can read the quote. It's something like, like, you know, John Bellingham says, like, I have no recourse. There's nothing else I can do. I have to go outside and, you know, use other pathways to achieve justice. And Hill's yeah. like, do whatever you have to do, man. Oh, but you're not going to get my cash. <laughs> so yeah. what does Bellingham do? Oh, no. 
He goes and buys two 12.7 millimeter pistols because oh. fuck the government. <laughs> oh, no. This escalated so fast. I know. It's like they should have listened to him, right? Mm. Yeah. I kind of understand where he's coming from, though. I'd yeah, be and pissed we'll... if I was in a gulag for half a decade. I know. And they were, were going to pay you or anything just because they revoked your travel, you know, your travel pass mm. or whatever. Like, shit's not good. Like, they owe him this cash, in my opinion, from what I have read. Yeah. Um, at least he has a decent case for it. It's not he as does. simple as, like, hey, just go away. We're not paying you anything. Like, I could see giving him a small amount of money. Yeah. Um, but nothing at all? Eh. Right. Eh. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so here's where I got lazy, or realized I was being lazy. Uh -huh. All right? Because I wanted to f step back a little bit uh, to learn a little bit more about what the hell was going on in the UK at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's this guy named Spencer Percival, yeah. and he's the Prime Minister of the UK, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we're gonna just kind of glaze over him a little bit, because the episode is not about him. Um, yeah. Well, we should cover him in an upcoming show. This is we totally like should, a... because there's enough about this guy. I mean, okay. he was a politician, so there's he has his boring moments, but he's a really nuanced dude. Sure. I mean, yeah, so let's talk about that, actually. Okay. Um, he was a super conservative Protestant guy. Mm -hmm. um, and he was known for going after radicals on both ends of the political spectrum. Oh, I like that. Um, so, like, you might think of super conservative as being radical, but it wasn't at this time. It sure. was, like, being like, oh, no, we need to go back to, like, being balanced. Like, that's being conservative, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so these radicals who are like, we need to, you know, massively change the country, you know, m largely reactionary to the Industrial Revolution, of course. Sure. Um, like, he's like, no, no, just hold up, calm down. <laughs> like, we're going to think about this shit. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't really look so good when people are, you know, sending their children to workhouses for days at a time yes. or whatever. Like, it, you've got to act. So he's not exactly the most popular of people. Mm -hmm. um, especially not with the people themselves. <laughs> um, so he was also known for being extremely pro-abolition. Oh, which that's is a, good. Yeah, obviously a good thing. Like I said, he's nuanced. Yeah. Um, he worked directly with William Wilberforce to pass the Slave Trade Act of 1807. Oh, shit. Well, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's really big. Wow. Like, he's not... It's not so simple, is it? Right? No. <laughs> No, um, no, because William Wilberforce had to work his ass off to get that passed. Uh -huh. That's a really complicated story. Oh, we gotta cover Wilberforce, too. Oh, that's he's a, on the list, motherfucker. He's on the story. list. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Percival is just a nuanced guy, kind of like behind the times a little bit, except ahead of the times with the abolition sure. shit. Um, he's just behind the times on, like, I think, managing the people in the face of, you know, massive revolution. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And also war with Napoleon. <laughs> right. So anyway, so like two years after he got the Slave Trade Act passed with William Wilberforce, he was made the first Lord of the Treasury, which is just a fancy old-fashioned way of saying Prime Minister. Mm -hmm. Right, so he was he was made Prime Minister. And he did not have one of the most stable careers because, like I said, there was this thing called the War Against Napoleon going on. <laughs> also the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Um, there's just a lot of unrest about the industrialization going on in Britain. Um, and again, Percival is, Percival is dealing with a really rapidly changing world, and yeah. so is everyone else. So it's like, it's almost like back then, it was, it was so revolutionary that you almost had, like, your own little PC culture, almost. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to directly compare it to it, but, like, there was no way to win back then, because there were no good solutions to yeah. handling this industrial revolution. It's like, oh shit, we're mass-producing things at a rate we've never thought possible, um, also, our workers are being exploited in ways we never thought possible. Right. Um, 
You know, it's almost like we're going back to serfdom, basically. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's not a good time in a lot of ways. I mean, industrial no. revolution, as we've seen, like in uh, past episodes, is not. It's it comes with a heavy price. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. So here's the thing, well, though. I, I want to say real quickly, the position he must have been in is so difficult, and we've seen this before. It's you have to. You, you're standing on two oxen, and each ox wants to go a different way. One is saying, you know, we got so many problems here at home, we gotta fix those. And the other one is saying, yeah, but Napoleon just conquered all of Europe, we gotta yep. focus on that. And it's, like, do we focus on the enemies here at home, or do we focus on the enemies abroad? Because it's really hard to do both. Right. And, oh, that just sounds complicated and hard we'll, we'll, t we'll take it <laughs> yeah. a little further yeah so you've got you've got two oxen going two different directions and your legs are spreading farther and farther away and meanwhile there's a robotic arm powered by children reaching up to just jab you in the ass whenever you start like taking the side because <laughs> right like, you can't stop i mean the industrial oh. revolution once it gets started and capitalism really starts to show its ugliness in a lot of ways mm -hmm. before it begins to be balanced out later on by social revolution in some ways um, like, it's, it's a, oh god, like, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing. I mean, once you get industrial stuff like that, factories and shit, up and moving, yeah. then you gotta start regulating it, because if you don't, uh, those things are gonna exploit the fuck out of the people, and they're not gonna be happy. And that's, I mean, <clears throat> that's a point that Dan Carlin made in Hardcore History in his, his uh, blueprint for Armageddon, uh, with the Russian Revolution was that, hey, they were industrializing and people were being exploited and they were also sending their boys into a war yeah. um, to die by the, you know, hundreds of thousands or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, meaninglessly and uselessly, you know, in the mud. For a right? czar this who is, didn't do anything for them. Yeah, seemingly. and so it's like when somebody comes along and says, hey, we need to br give the power back to the people, it's like you're going to swallow that pill no matter what's attached to uh -huh. it. So... I don't know. It's kind of amazing. Well, this is pre... This is... What What was this? This was obviously pre-Russian Revolution or whatever. But it's, like, kind of amazing. Because all it would take would be the literature of Marx back then. Yeah. To have, I think, caused Britain to go full communist. Because <laughs> that was all it took for Russia. I mean, well, I don't know. The other thing about Russia that's interesting is... It was one of the only European countries that didn't fully experience the rise of the merchant class... Uh, so, in the late medieval era, in most European countries, you had the, ri the rise of merchants, and with that came, uh, the rise of republics, like the Republic of Venice and whatnot. And so it's kind of like a three-step program. You go from feudalism to, uh, the merchant class, and then from there to, uh, the rule by the people, at least, uh, hypothetically so. But Russia just jumped straight from, um feudalism to rule by the people and there was no inner stage of the the structure that was brought by merchants and trade and uh, the early forms of capitalism you could say so mm. that's just a disaster when you when you don't have the infrastructure of trade in your country <laughs> <laughs> and then you're all of a sudden like, all right, we're going to get rid of our czar who's been ruling us for a thousand years and do rule by the people now. And none of us have any fucking idea how to rule ourselves or trade. <laughs> That's a bad, a bad situation. So, Not a great plan. <laughs> yeah. So I know but that it is, makes sense. I mean, I, I know that is one defense of modern day communists. They'll say, well, the Soviet Union it didn't implement true class reform because we didn't have the merchant stage. 
Mm. Um, yada, yada, yada. And that's a whole other rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I I don't... Wait, everyone can put a star down, I think, because we just talked about communism. <laughs> or is that the free space? Uh, both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, but, it, okay, that's all the global shit that's going on. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But here's the thing, is John Bellingham doesn't give two shits about what's going on on the global scale. Sure. He's just a victim, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's, and that's, well, at least that's his perspective, right? He's just a victim of a corrupted system. Um, so he just shows up in the House of Commons lobby on the 11th of May, 1812. But it wasn't the first time he'd been there. He'd been scouting the place for a while, sort of like asking people, hey, where's this Where's this certain minister over here? Like, where is he? Where's mm. this minister? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> where's the prime minister? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but he wasn't ready to move yet. Uh-huh. Um, first, he has to write some letters to a business partner. And then he goes to the museum with his landlady. <laughs> <laughs> Important business, you know. Yeah. Um, but he slinks away from the, mu- the museum at a certain point and heads to Parliament, arriving there just before 5 o'clock. Huh. And at 4.30, the House begins its session. But guess what? Oh, no. The Prime Minister's not there. Okay. So they send a messenger out to find the Prime Minister and just kind of wait, I guess. <laughs> I love that. And the mess- I know, it's just like so old-fashioned. It's like, oh, he's not here, we'll just wait a while. Yeah. <laughs> so the messenger finds the Prime Minister in the streets of London, just fucking walking to work. Because <laughs> he just decided not to take a carriage that day. Um, which made him 45 minutes late. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, this of course didn't matter though, because the moment that the Prime Minister Percival arrived, John Bellingham steps right the fuck up and shoots him in the chest. Oh, shit. The Prime Minister shouts in horror, I am murdered, before falling flat on his face in the lobby. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So, basically what happened is this. Everyone freaked the fuck out and carried Percival out of the room and threw him on a table to try and revive him, but it was just too late, right? He died within a few minutes. Um, But what happened to Bellingham? I don't know. <laughs> well, basically Assassin's Creed. <laughs> he stepped out of the crowd, shot the guy in the chest, and then sat down on a bench and waited. Oh, shit. Yeah. It took so long for anyone to identify him as the murderer that it said he could have escaped if he had simply walked out of the building in the pandemonium. Oh, God. Right? So, like, there was just this gunshot, and everyone's like, who the fuck fired that? Yeah. You know? And nobody knew, because there was just noise and smoke and blood huh. and... Um, he did. He just like could have gotten away with it, but he didn't. I really he wonder just, why he did that. We'll get there. Oh, um, oh shit. Okay. So he just sat there on the bench. Yeah. Um, and they eventually found him, of course, and they started to rough him up. Oh. Um, but he didn't struggle at mm. all. Uh, and when they asked why he did it, all he said was that he was setting right an injustice. Huh. Um, which is kind of mysterious, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but he was immediately taken off for questioning. Uh, the police invaded where he was staying. I think it was like a hotel room or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and conducted a search of his things. Meanwhile, Bellingham just said the following. I have sought redress in vain. I am a most unfortunate man and feel here... And, uh, and feel here. He put his hand on his heart while he was talking. Mm-hmm. I am a most unfortunate man and feel here, in here, deep down... That sufficient justification for what I have... That it was... There was sufficient justification for what he did. So wow. he's like, my heart and my conscience are clear. Yeah. Huh. Um, and he also told them that there was a man named Hill who had told him to do his worst, oh. so he had. Oh, shit. <laughs> so the prime minister's blood is on Hill's head, is what he's saying. Yeah. So they send the guy off to prison, and that's that, right? Right. Well, not exactly. Oh, God. So when the people of London heard of this murder, it turns out a lot of them were really happy with Percival's death. Hmm. 
you see. It's the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and while the whole industrialization thing ended up bringing in things like, you know, things, it also brought in child labor and starvation, and most importantly, that everyone seems to forget, mm -hmm. um, except for, like, conservative writers like G.K. Chesterton, there was a complete upending of civilization as it had been known to that point in history. Hmm. Yeah. Things are are completely changing. Yes. Right? Like, we've been doing this agrarian, you know, rulers with kings and shit for thousands of years. Yes. Um, even longer than that, you know. Um, but, like, now we're like, oh, we're just going to build a bunch of machines to do all that shit for us. It's like, oh, shit, we have to reorganize everything. Yeah. And people are going to get squished in the frictions that come. Well, and the other thing that stood out is, first of all, he... Just the idea that he chose to walk to work instead of taking a carriage. Like, yeah. imagine if you're, like, a 15-year-old kid who's working 16-hour days cleaning chimneys. You're going to die by the age of 30 because you inhale so much ash. And you see the prime minister just kind of waddling along to work, not taking his carriage because he wants to walk and enjoy the sights of London. Yeah, I'd be fucking happy when he got died. That's class warfare right there. <laughs> when he got died. When he got died. I'd probably talk <laughs> like that, too. <laughs> no, like, I totally get it. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I, and then you get into a morality debate, but that's not what we're about here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that that's where you get really into the first principle shit, like yeah. where you're really talking, you're really get, cutting the shit and getting down to it. But uh, that's for another day. The point is that um, people are like, like actually sort of celebrating this guy's death, mm -hmm. um, which is par for the course for the many of the world's uh, industrial revolutions. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so the people see John Bellingham as a kind of a hero. Yeah. And he they, he was kind of aligned a little bit with uh, this huge movement that Percival was fighting called Luddism. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you if you remember the Luddites. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yeah, it was just this movement in which people went around smashing machines in order to fight against the new cold way of life they were being forced into. Huh. It's sort of like people deleting Facebook a little bit, um, uh -huh. not but a little bit more dramatic, and people were being executed for it. So. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But they were, they were like, hey, like, I was a farmer and I had a good life, and now these, like, factories are forcing me to get a job in the city, and I don't want to live in, live in the city, and yeah. I have to live in a shitty little apartment. I don't have any fresh air. You know, I don't have any animals to take care of. My family's all packed into this little place. We're all fucking dirty. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no sanitation. It's not like when you're working in the fields, you just go take a shit in the woods and nobody cares. Mm -hmm. It's like you have to get that shit out of the city, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Complicated. Yeah, it's no small deal. So when John Bellingham uh when John Bellingham killed uh Prime Minister Percival, it kind of looked like the horrors of the Industrial Revolution might be reversed, mm. or at least it proved the Industrial Revolution wasn't as inevitable as everyone was making it out to be. Right, because these were the early years of it just developing. Right. The so like twelves or whatever. I, I kind of want to compare this to the digital revolution we've been experiencing for, you know, the last, what, okay. 30 years? Yeah. Uh, because it's like everything is changing so much that, you know, it's it's like businesses, oh, we used to advertise on billboards, and then it was, oh, we're advertising on the radio, and now we're on television. Mm -hmm. Now we're on videotapes. You know, you take home your, your Disney movie, and it's got trailers for movies at the beginning or whatever. Yeah. It's like, we've got ads in theaters, and now we've got ads on the internet, and it's like, you know, digital marketing is like changing the fucking planet and how we deal with people. Yeah. You know, I want to watch a video of, you know, Aussie man reviewing some, you know, fucking like lemon rolling down a gutter, but I have to watch <laughs> a 25 second ad about like 
you know, a goddamn Tesla before I do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are frustrated with that. And it's like, oh, Facebook's stealing your data and Google's data mining and all that shit. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's just inevitable. That's what you signed up for. What did you expect? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are also like, no, it's not inevitable. And it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. Um, and those are kind of the modern, modern Luddites, uh, so to speak, in a lot sure. of ways. I'm a bit of a Luddite myself. Ah. Uh, yeah. As you probably know. Um, but uh, anyway, so like. The point is, this is a point of major, major change in the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And an assassination sort of against that movement. It's like, yeah. it's almost like Mark Zuckerberg got assassinated. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like there's this, this, this symbol of, like, huge power in the digital world. And back then, it's like there's this huge symbol in the power of the Industrial Revolu Revolution. Yeah. Uh, Revelation. That's what I almost said. Industrial Revolution. Uh, and it's like, if that happened today... God damn, that would yeah. really change things. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of what Rousseau said. He believed evil came with urbanization and technological advancement. And to improve morality, we had to move away from those things and back to almost like a Thomas Jefferson way of living. Like, mm. you know, everyone's on a farm, traditional morality, um, and evil comes with the cities that are that are growing faster and faster in the industrial revolution just an interesting thought well i mean you know i i love having that conversation with people oh yeah um and i think it's a, i think it's a conversation you can actually have apolitically mm -hmm. um you don't you don't have to talk politics if you're talking about you know the uh the possible dangers of modernization. Yeah. Because, uh, like, I, I loved... The, half the reason I like G.K. Chesterton is he's, like, constantly bitching about modernity. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's like, you know, back in the day, like, you would go to a, a, a tavern in, you know, in the in the countryside and you'd order a pint of beer and some bread and cheese and that was your lunch. Mm -hmm. And, like, he, he's like, uh, he talks, you know, sort of, he makes jokes about it, like, you know, the, he talks about the the marriage of the soft cheese and the soft bread, and how it's it goes perfectly with your beer. And he's got another article where he talks about the dangers of cocktails because it sort of defeats the point. Hmm. You're just drinking to get drunk, basically, really yeah. fast. And he's like, you know, you're supposed to enjoy the pint and take it slow. And it's like we're moving so fast these days. It's like if I can't get drunk right fucking now, what's the point? Huh. Um, he complains about, um, and this is a little later on when he's writing, but yeah. he complains about uh, like. How when you go into the cities, like, you order bread and cheese, and they give you cheese and crackers. Ah. And it's, like, a tiny amount of cheese, and the crackers are, like, you know, brittle and disgusting and whatnot. Hmm. Um, so, I don't know. That's I have a lot of sympathy for people who are kind of, like, you might say a progressive. Sure. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> well. Are you there? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm there. I'm just kind of thinking this over. And shit, I lost you. Oh, shit. Are, can you hear me? Sorry, what? Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Oh, okay. It's all good now. Okay, well, I heard everything you said. And it, it's kind of like with every new invention comes a new terror. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, just look at the internet. <laughs> well, I mean, for fuck's sake, just look at... I mean, you don't even have to go that big. How about planes? Oh, yeah. Like, we've got we've got airplanes. Like, oh, we're going to fly and we're going to go around the world and revolutionize travel and, and you know, goods transport and that sort of thing. And it's like, oh, right, now we're going to use them to drop bombs on people. Yep. <laughs> that's like, that's just uh. how it works. It's like you get these technologies and it's not, and it's like everything seems great for a while until they're weaponized. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, 
And uh, Alex Jones would probably make the case that uh, the internet has been weaponized against him. Mm. Mm. Uh, stay woke. No. Stay woke. Yes. Uh, oh, God. I was thinking about that joke we made way early on about, like, how I would encourage people to read Breitbart and Drudge Report. Oh, yeah. Infowars and shit. And then we would beat me out. Yeah. No longer a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by that, I mean, yeah. I'll be beeped out if I encourage <laughs> yeah. Yes. I am not encouraging that for the record. <laughs> if you want to laugh, go to the comment sections. That's it. People are going to think we're, we're total like conservative monarchists. Well, well, <laughs> I like having those conversations. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that's why I like this one in particular about industrialization and and you know technology and that sort of thing because you don't have to drag politics into it. Yeah. Um, and I fucking hate politics, but I do like talking about big things like that. Yeah. Well, and it, so one, I, I will say one more thing to keep this conversation going. The other bad thing about industrialization is it often kills art too. <laughs> Because, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, an artistic chair, a handmade carved chair, is going to be way more expensive than just your nearest IKEA slop. So, if you're worried about money, you're going to go to IKEA, and suddenly the, the craftsmen are losing their trades mm -hmm. uh, because they're being outperformed and the, they can't deal with the competition. Well, speaking of that shit, mm. um, it's super interesting to see uh, the wealthy sort of investing in craft trade again. Oh, yes. Yeah, like, oh, I buy craft beer, and I get all my food grown organically and locally, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And, you know, this this shawl was knitted by a, you know, aborigine woman or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, and, you know, I paid her top dollar for it, something like that. It's really interesting to see that. Yes. Um, it. There was another point I wanted to make, too. Uh Yeah, okay, so you were saying, like, the, the reduction of craft to just process. Yeah, so, um, I mean, it, it's a, a clear example of that would be uh, kind of what Chesterton was saying about that, going to a tavern and eating that cheese and, and bread that you know the tavern owner or his family had just made that day. Like, that's, he made yeah. that. Whereas today, I just go to Burger King and buy three delicious junior breakfast burritos, <laughs> stuff them down my fat gullet, well, it, and that then is, feel okay, like that shit is for a couple form. days. That is an art form, I'll say. So, <laughs> shit. I take back well, everything I say. Obesity is art. Well, yeah, it's sort of like... Uh... Well, okay, the, the point I wanted to make also about... Since we're talking about writers who were worried about the future. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a section in 1984 that a lot of people seem to gloss over. Hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that's a wrong thing because there are bigger themes than this. But one of the little points he makes is there are people whose job it is to make stories uh, oh, yeah. for movies and books and novels, and they're making them for the, for the proles, right? The mm -hmm. proletariat out in the, out in the ghetto or whatever. Um, and the, uh, the thing is, that they have is like this kaleidoscope, and all they do is turn around these little formulas until they find one that, you know, vaguely fits the structure of a movie those kinds of people would like. Yeah. Um, and that, that, anyway, that's the attitude of them, those kinds of people, the proles, right? Yeah. Um, and they just they just shit out movies. Oh, like the new Star <laughs> Wars movies. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't get me started on that shit. But no, it, it is true because, like, you know, I, I went to school for film. I understand. I understand how they they organize story structure, yeah. and I don't have a problem with story structure. I think structure is one of the most important things that they're getting rid of in movies these days. Yeah. Um, but structure is not being used these days to advance 
art. Hmm. It's being used to sell product.、Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, art is being sort of like grabbed up by you know almost strictly postmodernist ideas、um, about like oh we're just going to eliminate structure、hmm. completely you know and we're gonna we're gonna make shit that nobody wants to watch and then when they you know when people are like it's not brilliant it's just posing you know we're gonna we're gonna go after our critics for for accusing us of not being artists they're they're backwards and、yeah. recalcitrant and you know they're they're they just don't recognize the genius and. Oh, j- real quick! I'm、God、gonna interrupt、damn. you there. Just hang on to that thought because we're gonna get more into that with Gabriel's later life. Just, oh, good. Just kind of warming you up for that. But keep on going. This is gold. Yeah. No, I, I, I want to have. I want to talk about this more. I've actually been thinking about it a lot lately.、Mm-hmm. I, I, I know. I called. I called you yesterday,、um, and I just had to get out of the city. Yeah. I drove about 45 minutes out to this fucking nowhere city called or town almost, not city. Uh, called Taylor just to get away from the noise,、mm. um, and I'm I'm planning on once I get kind of a structured schedule here, I'm planning on taking weekend camping trips, maybe alone. Nice, just because you man, when you're on the internet all the time,、mm. you know I'm on it all the time because I'm researching, I'm looking for jobs, I'm you know、uh, talking obviously to me, right, talking to you. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's funny that we're talking about the disadvantages of this while we're using everything. To, <laughs> Absolutely, you know. Yeah.、Um, but at the same time, like, I I really really、um, I just worry about it a lot. Yeah. And because you know, when I'm on constantly, it's like I can't I can't sleep until I decide to put down the fucking phone. Yeah. Because、so、if I just say, "All right, phone's done," just set it down. I'm gonna pick it up five seconds later. I have to make an active decision in my brain: phone off now. Yeah, it has to be a disciplined choice. It、mm. didn't used to be that way. It just, oh god, I'm tired, and then I fall asleep. You know, holding the phone. I don't do that anymore.、Mm. Um, it's become it's internet use and 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 that sort of thing has become almost like a drug. I mean, I've got on. Well, it's the beast. Oh God! But that's what's you. You know what? That's funny about that is I've I've well, you've heard people say that shit before. Oh yeah, yeah. We come from obviously conservative backgrounds. That was a Christian and, reference. The Beast, in yeah. The Book of Revelations or the Beast in the、no. Book of Revelation, yeah. And by the way, I've been reading the Book of Revelation, and let me tell you something.、Mm-hmm. Jesus is coming back like tomorrow, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we should do? Huh? We should reenact the Book of Revelation on the air. <laughs> Hey, we could do that. We need to do it. Next、oh、fake episode, I say. <laughs> Next fake episode.、Um, but yeah, the, like these are conversations that I know that、um, at least、uh, a lot of Protestants have a lot,、mm-hmm. and I don't have a problem with people talking about this shit, even、no. in the context of revel, you know, not of revelatory, you know, of revelatory prophecy,、um, because I mean. Well, fucking Jesus! I mean, because like 1984 is almost prophetic. Yeah, oh for sure. It, it's it's almost it's prophetic, and I've heard people say Aldous Huxley was closer with、uh, Brave New World. Like,、mm-hmm. no, actually, it's fucking both. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, they go together.、Um, for Christ's sake! So, anyway, so that's what. Oh shit! You probably have more you want to say. No, just kind of building off of you. Just because something is old doesn't automatically make it bad. Uh, mm-hmm. And just because something is new doesn't automatically make it good. That's、um, true, and vice versa, of course, too.、Uh, I mean, there are old bad things, and there are new good things. But yep,、uh, again, it comes down to that same thing we've discovered this whole podcast adventure is that things are more complicated than black and white. Yeah, it's really, really true, and、yeah. that's why you have to have the new interacting with the old. 
Yeah. You know, and and I think that's been one of my favorite things about running this podcast so far mm-hmm. has been we're a couple of millennials in a in a an age where things are taking off at a speed that's unimaginable or was unimaginable before. Um, and we're talking about old shit. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about the way things used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think – and the more I read it, it's kind of funny because the more I read it, the more I understand conservatives. Hmm. Uh, and okay. the, well, and I don't mean political conservatives, by the way. Okay. I mean, so, like I classical mean, liberals or class. No, or, like I would say, I would say like um, maybe traditionalists? more traditionalists, more like traditionalism. Because okay. um, I get it. There's this. There's there's a there's a power to tradition where it's like, okay, it's worked this way for thousands of years, and if we change it at all, yeah, um, you know, we're fucked. Well, that's not true. You can you can hold on to tradition while also you know growing up a little bit sure and because there are benefits to that there's a reason that um there's a reason that traditions exist you can't just toss them out as like you can't toss all of them out i should say Mm -hmm. as just like bullshit from the past yeah because i mean uh shit go and read some confucius for christ's sake it's still applicable today yeah you know go read some go read some plato it's still applicable today these were thousands of years ago these these you know these works came out Mm -hmm. um and uh, you, can, if they're still applicable today, that means they're still good. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to throw out all of Confucianism. Right. It doesn't mean you have to get rid of Platonic principles. Yeah. You know, like, but I think I think these days, like, people are are so ready to just throw away the hist- the past and the history, and um, you know, go with what's what's uh, what's modernized before they go with what's yeah. with what's. Uh, demonstrably workable or true yeah um but and that's I, I think but i think yeah it's pretty terrifying how quickly people want to just get rid of structures that have been in place for you know however long yeah um because that always backfires yeah it always backfires i mean it, it really does and we've seen that we've seen that you know again and again was we've covered revolutions and that sort of thing it's mm-hmm. like that yeah. shit doesn't go well. Well, and the revolutions that do go well, I'll say, is when the the revolutionaries put forth elements and hold dear to them things that are old and traditional. Like, I'm going to just be totally patriotic right now. Do it. But the founding <laughs> fathers held traditional Christian morality <laughs> close to them. Uh, even the ones that weren't Christians, uh, yes. mind you, like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, like, they... They said, "Okay, look, we may not agree with Christianity, but there's some there's some good things in there that we uh, we think are important, and also uh, elements of the Roman Republic, uh, which was mm. pagan, or uh, ancient Greek democracy, things like that, old traditions that were two thousand plus years uh, old." And they looked back at that and said, "Well, from understanding where we came, it's easier to understand where we are now." Mm. And I think yeah. that's when revolutions uh, have a chance. <laughs> um, Whereas other revolutions, it's just like, well, take down the people in charge, and then it's like, okay, but what's plan? What's a uh, step two of that plan? <laughs> you're just yeah. gonna, uh, you're just gonna substitute the oppressors with more oppressors. Yeah, it's true. And I just and I love having this conversation. By the way, I can't get enough of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's a reason that most stories that really resurrect or resurrect. God damn it! I just gave away my point. <laughs> that really you know resonate with people is resurrection stories Mm. and like i learned this in college like we were talking about like okay look at the three-act structure the hero always dies at the end Hmm. and then comes back yeah 
Always dies. I mean, Harry Potter, Captain fucking America. Yeah. He he dies at the end of both movies. <laughs> like, he's fucking dead. And then he comes back. And, well, I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of predictive of how this shit goes. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and, because, like, what happens is basically, I mean, like, look at fucking Russia these days. Right. What are they doing? Uh, they're driving really poorly. Yeah, but also, <laughs> also, uh, they're not being too cool with adoption. Oh God. <laughs> um, no, like I mean, look at the rhetoric that they're using these days. Yeah. No, I know. They're like going back to we need to go back to tradition, mm. and they're they're um they're bringing back the church like never before. Huh. Uh, have you seen that? Any of that going on? Uh, mentions of it. Yeah, like Putin is like pro orthodoxy from what I've seen. Interesting. It's weird. Me, yeah. Um, but you know, it's also like you've got the Great Awakening, which we'll be talking about in a in a little bit, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, we've got the Great Awakening where uh people were like basically like floundering in this new world, and then it was like, oh shit, like there's a God who can save you, and all you have to do is you know pray this prayer and join my little Protestant sect, and you can be saved and go to heaven, and bam, Great Awakenings, like. Because when you go too far in one direction, people, like, get thirsty for the other side a little mm, bit. Mm-hmm. Um, do I need to stop? Do I need to stop? Oh, no, you're fine. Okay. I mean, people are going to think we're evangelicals, which we could be. It, it, we could start we could our be. radio. You don't know. Evangelical <laughs> movement. <laughs> you don't know. We could be fucking evangelicals. You don't know. Uh, I'm a pagan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an evangelical pagan, so that... I'm a verisite. I don't know. <laughs> Verus. Um, all right, so we got really off track there. That was um, good, though. Well, I want to say one last thing. Yes. Uh, kind of with the old and new theme is I, I think true goodness, true art, is when you fuse the old with the new, and that's why I am translating the Transformer movies into hieroglyphics. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the Lord's work. Exactly. <laughs> Doing the Lord's work. Uh, no, I, I think that's a good point, too. Um I don't know. My favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. That's a daring movie in a lot of ways, but it still has the three-act structure. So, mm, Yeah. Um, but anyway. Um, so, a murder? Yeah. The prime minister was murdered, and it was no small deal, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and, you know, since because of what we've been talking about, like, it should not surprise you that there was widespread fear that a full-blown revolution might come out of this. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Because this... This guy had, had stood up as they saw it for the people against this industrialization and this, this like unstoppable, no brakes on this train, you know, yeah. uh, kind of movement toward industrialization. Like we don't care if a few children get sucked into machines. Like we're going this way. Mm. Um, they're you know fucking frustrated. Um, people in the streets were celebrating uh, the death of Prime Minister Percival. Wow. The huh. police were deployed uh, by the hundreds. Huh. Uh, to keep the mobs in check. Jesus. <laughs> Meanwhile, the House decided to give 50,000 pounds to Percival's widow with a 2,000 pound annual uh, stipend, I guess, to keep her wow. supported, which is a lot of fucking money. That is a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And if word gets out, like... <sighs> that's more reason to hate the aristocracy. That's more reason to hate the aristocracy. It's like, okay, we'll give her, you know, 2,000 pounds, like, annually. All right, that's good enough. That's good. Like, that... 
I don't know. That's. I mean, I don't know the inflation rate. I don't either. But I'm. Sh and I'm, I'm sure that. And we're not what? against giving money to widows. That's not the deal here. <laughs> well, I am. What fuck the fuck up. are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> no, but like again, it's not so much about the facts of it. It's about the perception. Yeah. It, you know, the, I'm sure she saw some criticism for that shit. Sure. Anyway. Yeah. So Bellingham is in prison. He's being questioned again. Hmm. Uh, and his lawyer th is thinking he might just use the insanity defense. Hmm. And his lawyer was like the 1812 version of Jimmy McGill. <laughs> uh, he's cheap, flamboyant, and Irish as fuck. Excellent. <laughs> um, and that's that's literally what it said in the in, in on Wikipedia, um, <laughs> and also on the uh, Murderpedia. Mm. Um, but anyway, so the night before the trial, uh, Bellingham get this drinks a pint of heavy porter. And sleeps like a rock. Oh, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave our assassin Bellingham until we return to him for his end and death. All right. Well. Yeah. So I need to take a fucking break. So speaking of Luddism. <laughs> what? Speaking of Luddism, the Luddite movement. Uh huh. The smashing machines because the way of life was changing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm on Bumble, and I can't seem to smash anything. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no. okay. I actually haven't gotten... I've gotten one positive interaction on there. Oh, good. And I didn't... I let the message expire because she was 84 miles away. Oh, jeez. And I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that, bro. Yeah. That's uh, okay, though. Yeah. So... You'll find someone. I hope so, but I get the feeling more and more... There's no one out there for me. There's no, there's no A to my B. There's no pepperoni on my pizza. There's no cheese on the grilled cheese. <laughs> just a grilled. <laughs> well, just remember, <clears throat> there are plenty of fish in the sea. There are plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> There are plenty of fish, there are plenty of fish for you and me in the sea. There are plenty of fish in the sea. There are plenty of fish in the sea. Like A to B and the Pacific Sea, there are plenty of fish in the sea. Yes, there's plenty of fish in the sea. There are plenty of fish in the sea. Also, German U-boats. Those are still out there. I'm positive. Uh, the Bermuda Triangle is probably just a haven of German U-boats that are still operating, and that's why yeah. all those ships and airplanes go Do you know down. what the U? You know what the U is short for? Umbridge. I thought it was underwear. Oh, yeah. It's probably under boats. It's probably under. Which is disappointing and lame. Yeah. But that is what you get <laughs> when you let your heart free. It's the most robotic sentence. <laughs> that's what you get when you let your heart free. I think that's how it goes. Well, is it free? I don't know what you're talking about. It's a song. Dude, I don't listen to music. Oh, Christ. All right. I tap on two rocks, and that's my jam. <laughs> Kids these days with their... their Retro dubstep and their BDSM music, and it's just disgusting. 
<laughs> when I was a boy, I didn't have two choices. My two choices were listen to the AM radio station or die. And I chose death because the radio was too Democrat. <laughs> the radio was too cheeseburger. I don't know. I'm thinking about cheese now. Yeah, me too. Oh, delicious, delicious cheese. Mmm. So, shall we get into Gabriel de, uh, de Nunzio's adult life? Yes. <laughs> Gabriele. 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 Mamma mia. Mamma mia. Mario. <laughs> Pasta. Uh, that's, that's all I know. <laughs> is it? Is are we allowed to mock Italians? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Uh, uh, yeah. Mamma We've mocked mia. the French so much. Uh, <laughs> We uh, switch sides. Uh. Um, <laughs> our country looks like a boots. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. Wow. Wow. Yeah, okay, we can mock Italians. It's official. Mm -hmm. Are you Italian? I am not Italian. Are Neither you? Neither am I. Oh. Because I'm not a fucking loser. <laughs> I'm British. I can mock anyone. <laughs> At least a hundred years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Ever since <laughs> Paraval died, it hasn't been the same. What? The, whoever was the prime minister? Spencer like, Percival. Percival. Paraval. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Paraval? <laughs> I'm sure there was about a Paraval the in of British Narnia. history. <laughs> I'm gonna look that up. Paraval. Certainly. Uh, British history. Um, never mind. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> You're <Moving> a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall we go into Gabriele D'Annunzio's adult life? Yep, and hold Let's on to it. your bootstraps, Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Joke's on you, I'm not wearing shoes. <laughs> well, at least you're wearing a shirt. <laughs> wearing a I'm shirt. still chafing my nipples on my... my <laughs> My headphone cord, <laughs> which keeps dangling from left to right, and I've never felt so open and naked in my whole life. I just want my parents to come back home so bad. <laughs> Open the door and you're just on the floor, like with your burritos. <laughs> Holding it like a baby. <laughs> Whispering sweet nothingness into its ear. Your burritos have ears, is that because they're from Burger King? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Industrialization is dangerous. <laughs> we gotta go, man. We gotta get started. We do. Okay. Well, so, <laughs> when we last left Gabriel de Annunzio, he was busy writing all kinds of books and poems, and uh, now, oh, look, he's into writing plays. Good. So, in 1980, or 1897, he wrote a play to star French actress Sarah Bernhardt, which she agreed to. And uh, it was about a brother and sister who had sex with each other, so many critics attacked it because incest wasn't cool. Of course. Uh, yeah. But Gabriele wasn't hurt by this, and the next year he wrote a play, La Gloria, which focused on political tragedy, but this met with no success. Uh, but Gabriele didn't care, so he made another play in 1901, Francesca da Rimini, which was a medieval-themed play about Francesca da Rimini, who pursues forbidden love and then ends up in Dante's Inferno because of it. Classic. Yep. Uh, and this play was praised by critics. Not surprising. He also wrote a play that was so raunchy that it started a fist fight between the actors and the members of the audience. Damn. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, also, he, he wrote another play, which playfully suggested that Italy should go to war with Austria, and then Austria got wind of this play and protested against it. <laughs> God. Which is interesting. Yeah. And uh, now, I want to stop here for a moment to share something I came across again and again while researching Gabriele D'Annunzio. Uh, basically this, this guy is a narcissist. <laughs> okay. And I mean, even in his own words, he said that he was the ubermensch of humanity and that democracy would never work because almost everybody else was more stupider than he was. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But here's the thing that sets Gabriele apart from other narcissists I've come across. The dude is actually really good at it. <laughs> Like, he never has, you know, the fall from grace. <laughs> oh, God! No, he just... He's perfect. <laughs> and what? I don't really mean that, but... Oh, okay. Just keep that in mind. Um, All right. You're he, like, it. has it in his mind that he will not lose, and even if he does, it's not his failings, but merely the failings of the others who are blind or stupid. Kind of what you brought up earlier. Right. Yeah. So, uh, pretty much every aspect of his life is like this, as you will see. Uh, and throughout it all, there are people who just adore him, despite him being a huge douchebag. Mm, he's a cult-like kind of person. Exactly, yeah. Got it. Mm. And uh, while researching him, I found myself even kind of admiring him, even though he's such an ass. Oh. Uh, and I don't like him, but I still kind of admire him. <laughs> okay. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. He's the perfect narcissist, and you kind of have to give it to him for that. Okay, got it. Anyway, now that we've covered his early literary works, let's back up a bit. In 1883, Gabriel married Maria Herdu Harduin de Galice, something like that. <laughs> great, great job. Thank you. And they had three sons, and then they got divorced. Oh. Uh-huh. So then in uh, 1894, Gabriel started pursuing Italian actress Eleonora Doucet, uh, who is remembered as being one of the greatest actresses, uh, actresses of all time, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, and the two soon began a relationship that were seen as one of the first celebrity couples in history. Uh, and the public just ate that shit up. Of course uh, they did. Because both people were very popular at this time. But things were tense because, of course, during this time, Gabriel was also pursuing other women. Like you do. Yeah. One of these women was Leanne de Pougie. <laughs> Pouget, I don't know. Who was a famous French courtesan. And upon meeting at a lunch party in Florence in 1902, Gabriel gave her one of his plays and then invited her back to his old villa. Oh. She said yes, so he sent a carriage completely filled with roses to pick her up. Oh, God. <laughs> and then when the carriage arrived at his villa, servants opened the doors and chucked more rose petals at her. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Then the wow. two uh, lovebirds went for a walk, admiring all the old statues and armor that Gabriel had collected and placed around his gardens. Wow. Yeah, pretty romantic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look at my statues. <laughs> also, my armor. <laughs> yep. That's basically the blood and wine expansion Yeah. See, for The Witcher 3. This is what you're missing on Bumble. You need <laughs> just pictures of all these <laughs> naked Greek marble men. <laughs> and then your hoplite armor. <laughs> just Photoshop my face onto one of yeah, those. Yeah, those women will fall all over you. Great. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, there was another woman named Luisa Cassati, an Italian heiress and patroness of the arts, who Gabriel just had to have. Uh, so the two had basically a lifetime-long affair beginning in 1903, 
Uh, then there was also Romaine, who was a talented artist and poet. And she and Gabriel struck up a complicated affair in which it looks like he emotionally abused her quite often. Oh, fuck. Potentially, uh, physically abusive as well. Oh, Jesus. Uh, which is really sad because she wanted this relationship to work, it looks like. Uh, but she finally moved away heartbroken and wrote to him the following. And this is so fucking sad. Oh, God. So she wrote to him and said, Dear friend, believe me, true love does not simply consist of the banal and brutal act. There are so many other things whose very existence you ignore. Your destructive power is stronger than you, and everything that comes near you is annihilated. I had hoped, because I had so much respect for you and your art, you would have had a little for mine. But it was not so. I was for you only another female to destroy. Holy shit. Right? That's sad as fuck. I and know. So he's just using these women. But yeah. the worst thing about this is he replied to her letter, and oh. he said this. I cannot understand it. You have all you want from life. I foresee to the day you die an endless number of legs to explore. What boundless joy! Even in heaven, dear poet, there will be reserved for you an enormous octopus with an infinite number of women's legs and no head. Forgive Wh my candor. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, he's a hedonist. And yeah, he he expects, really is. He expects everyone else to be a hedonist. Exactly, yeah. He's, he, uh, he, and he's, he believes in a celestial octopus leg lady <laughs> <laughs> that you can fuck for all eternity. That's just... Oh. He's insane. That's insane. It is, his story's insane. All right. Yeah, he was a horny-ass motherfucker. All and right. we really have no idea how many women he got into his bed. I mean, even his goddamn housekeeper was expected to have sex with him three times a day. How do you get anything done? I don't know, but that was in the job description. What the shit? Yeah. Oh, and then he also wrote in his journal about his fantasy of raping working-class women. What? So... Wh what? Kind of the worst. Oh. Oh, Why oh, the okay. working I, class? I forgot to give a trigger trigger warning for this episode. It's like a oh, solid shit. six, I'd say. Okay. A six? It's okay. not... I mean, that's probably the worst stuff right there. Um, but I, I'm just wondering why working class? Uh, well, he was a very aristocratic young man. Um, right. I don't know. It, it's... I don't really want to get into that. Well, I just don't know. I just... I don't know why that would be so specific, but I guess maybe just because it's well, his particular Well, actually, I think, it, I think it may be twofold. Is he was very power-hungry and all into mm. control. So it could have been both a sexist thing, um, controlling women, as well as a classed thing, uh controlling the lower classes um hmm i don't Fair know enough. it's it's really gross <laughs> yeah Ugh, anyway he's kind of a douche canoe yeah and what is a douche canoe to do uh get involved in politics exactly <laughs> oh, God. so in 1897 gabriel runs as an independent and is elected to the chamber of deputies which is part of the italian parliament and I shit you not, his whole campaign was basically just to prove how famous he was. Of course it was. Yeah, yeah, that's all he was running for. Uh, then once elected, he gave a lot of speeches about how great he was and how everybody else was stupid. Uh, and he was not re-elected, but he still viewed this as a victory because he had found legislative politics boring. And he's a narcissist. And he's a narcissist, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a few years later, though, problems arose. Gabriel was shit out of money. What? Already? Yeah. Damn. 
and his creditors were knocking at his doors. So Gabriel, being the brave and honest man he was, fled to France to escape his debt. (laughs) (sighs) Ha! Okay. In France, he worked with composer Claude Debussy to make the musical play The Martyrdom of St. Sebastian. Oh. But there was a problem. Uh. The person playing St. Sebastian was a woman and a Jew. Um. Yeah. So the Archbishop of Paris urged good Catholics to stay away from the play. Oh. Uh, because <laughs> we can't have a woman Jew play a saint. Right. Oh, I God. At least I understand it. I uh, Okay, it's old-fashioned. Yes, uh, and this also proved to be the final straw for the papacy as well, who soon moved all of Gabriel's works to the Index of Forbidden Books. What? There's an... Yeah. There's an index of forbidden books? There is, yeah. Really? Yep. And Gabriel's works were on this index. Oh, shit. So, I think that's our new goal for this podcast, yeah. I gotta say. <laughs> we Definitely. gotta get on the papal index of forbidden books. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I will consider this a failure if we don't get into the index of forbidden podcasts. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, next, uh, things change. And Gabriel met a magical land uh, land mower, which showed him the ways of the Chosen Ones, and then on what? their way to Baghdad of the Skies, they- Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my- oh my god, Aaron! Do you know what time it is? No! It's time for World War fucking One! Shit! <laughs> yeah, World War One. so our boy Gabriel immediately moves back from France to Italy to do his part in the war! <coughs> Uh, he gave a whole bunch of public speeches supporting Italy's decision to join the war on the side of the Allies. But this right. wasn't enough. Oh. Gabriel had to do his part. Now, a few years earlier, Gabriel had gone on a happy little flight with Wilbur Wright. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yes, one of the Wright brothers. <laughs> oh! Uh, and ever since, he had loved flying. Okay. So, at the age of 51, our boy Gabriel became an Italian fighter pilot. <laughs> Uh, Alright, fine. I'm not surprised by anything. No, just accept point. it. Just sit no, down, I, I open your butt cheeks, it. and accept it. What the fuck? <laughs> okay. What the fuck indeed. So All he's right. an Italian fighter pilot. Okay, at 51. Yep. He went on several raids and missions, which further propelled his celebrity status amongst the Italian public. And in one such mission, he actually lost his sight in one of his eyes, and so now he was even more of a war hero. Uh, I believe it was shrapnel. <laughs> oh, uh, God. But not all. I thought you said. I thought you said Shreknel. Shreknel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just comes whizzing out of the explosion, donkey, <laughs> right into his eye. <laughs> That's the sound it makes. <laughs> oh God. So speaking of being funny, uh, Italy wasn't doing well in the war. <laughs> Alright, so in November of 1917, the Austrians and Germans just crushed the Italians at the Battle of Caporetto. Uh, it was a total Italian fiasco. The Caporetto fiasco. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in this battle, 10,000 Italian... <laughs> We're talking about dead human beings. Alright, hold on, you didn't get there yet. I could still make the jokes. Alright, alright. On a Capas- more... Caparasco. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough. There's the Battle of Caporetto, and what happened? 10,000 Italians were killed. I'm going to hell. 30,000 <laughs> were wounded. 
Over 3,000 artillery pieces were captured, and a whopping 265,000 Italian soldiers were captured. Wow. So, a quarter of a million. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. So, Italy's wartime morale was now at an all-time low following this defeat. No shit. Um, and the other thing about Italy in World War One is... It wasn't a very heroic... Well, I mean, World War I was just a shit fest. Um, yeah. But for Italy, it was basically war in the Alps. Trench warfare in the Alps against the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And oh, God. And neither side really gained ground for, for year after year. It was just, you went to die in the mountains. It was horrific. God damn So, it. after this huge battle, Italian morale is just... It's pretty poopy. No. <laughs> <laughs> so our boy Gabriel knew that he needed to boost the Italian spirit. Gotcha. So his first attempt at doing this was by joining 30 Italian Marine commandos <clears throat> who went on a secret mission to basically take tiny speedboats against the Austrian <laughs> Navy, fire a few torpedoes, and then escape before retaliation. That is so... S what the fuck? Yeah, also at night. <laughs> uh, what? This guy, this playwright, who's in his 50s, yeah. is going out with commandos exactly. on little speedboats. It's like a James Bond movie. This is the stupidest shit I've ever heard. Oh, dude, we haven't even started. Okay, alright. Alright, so this speedboat commando mission went fairly well. Uh, it happened on February 10th, 1918, and the three boats evaded Austrian patrols, found their target, and shot six torpedoes at it. All of which missed or got stuck in fishing net. <laughs> oh! Uh, the Austrians then raised the alarm, but the Italians managed to flee. Thus, nothing was accomplished, but the Italian public was encouraged by this event because, hey, at least they didn't lose. <laughs> and that was pretty much all the Italians could hope for at this point. It's really depressing. I know, they're like, oh, a military operation that we didn't lose. Success! Yes! <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, I guess if you're getting slapped every day... Yeah. <laughs> ...by the giant... <laughs> ...dick of the Austrian army. That's what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> Too many dick jokes. We gotta roll those back a bit. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, but Gabriel wanted to do more, right? Of course he did. He wanted to do the impossible. <laughs> oh, okay. So he organized a raiding party. And the plan was this. He and a few other pilots would fly 11 rickety-ass planes <laughs> on a 700-mile round trip to fly over Vienna, which is, you know, one of the biggest cities in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right. <laughs> drop a bunch of propaganda leaflets, and then return back to Italy. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, and also they would paint lions on their airplanes because fuck yeah, lions. <laughs> And then the bastards did it! <laughs> I have to put down my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> so it took place on August wow. 9th, 1918, and it's known as the Flight Over Vienna. Uh, and Gabriel himself had written what the propaganda leaflets read. Oh, that makes sense, because he's a writer. He's a writer, yeah, and this was his yeah. plan, his mission. So they let him do it. So 50,000 okay. leaflets were set uh, on a leaflet that was colored green, white, and red after the Italian flag. They were not translated into German. Okay. <laughs> they were still in Italian for some reason. That's kind of mysterious and scary to see, though, a foreign language in your country. Absolutely. Well, and we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So I, I do have what the pamphlet said, and I want 
I, I included it's a it's a bit lengthy, not too long, but I wanted because you've studied propaganda, uh -huh. and I want to know what you think. So I'm gonna read this. All right, I'm gonna pay close attention. Okay, so these are what the the pamphlets said. On this August morning, while the fourth year of your desperate convulsion comes to an end and luminously begins the year of our full power, suddenly there appears the three-color wing as an indication of the destiny that is turning. Destiny turns. It, tor it turns towards us with an iron certainty. The hour of that Germany that thrashes you and humiliates you and infects you is now forever past. Your hour is past, and our faith was the strongest. Behold how our will prevails, and will prevail until the end. The victorious combatants of Piav, the victorious combatants of Marna, feel it, they know it, with an ecstasy that multiplies the impetus. But if the imp impetus were not enough, the number would be. And this is said for those that try fighting ten against one. The Atlantic is a path already closing, and it's a heroic path, as demonstrated by the new chasers who colored the orc with German blood. On the wind of victory that rises from freedom's rivers, we didn't come except for the joy of the daring. We didn't come except to prove that we could venture and do whatever, whenever we want in an hour of our choice. The rumble of the young Italian wings does not sound like the one of the funeral bronze in the morning sky. Nevertheless, the joyful boldness suspends between St. Stephen and the Graben an irrevocable sentence, O Viennese. Wow. Oh, and then it said, long live Italy. I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So pretty so, powerful. <laughs> that is powerful shit, too. Yeah. Um, God damn. Yeah. So, I, I yeah. <laughs> Very... I mean, my reaction, my reaction to that is pretty obvious, like the <clears throat> hallmarks of propaganda in there. Yeah. Uh, they use light to describe themselves, mm -hmm. you know, luminously. Uh, begins the year of our full power. Yeah. Um, saying you're de describing their state or their state as a uh, desperate convulsion. Oh. Um, and then there's an aphorism about destiny tens, right? It's a wisdom. Right. It's a piece of wisdom that sounds old and real because you know you got the wheel of fortune and history and all that shit. Um, and then there's, I mean, there's so many concrete images like iron certainty, yeah. you know, the Germany that thrashes you and humiliates you and infects you. Yeah. Um, your hour is past. Our faith was the strongest. It prevails and will prevail until the end. It doesn't matter if they are. They're saying they are. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and they're describing the victorious combatants of Piave or whatever, the victorious combatants of Marna. They feel it, right? It's getting down to your soul. It's like, it's, it's, it's reaching in and going like, you feel it too, don't you? Exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, <clears throat> like, it's a heroic path, mm -hmm. right? That's really powerful shit, too. If you describe somebody as a hero and they go, oh, I, I might... I might be a hero. Suddenly they, you know, they adjust their complete frame of the world. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, I love the uh, the rumble of the young Italian wing. Like, yeah. look at this. This is, a, this is a comparison between the young and the old. It's the young Italian wing versus the funereal bronze. Yep. It's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. These are really sharp contrasts, and that's what you see in propaganda. Yeah. Um, the only thing that stood no out to me was the repetition Oh, uh, shit, yeah. Like, right next to each other. They say, uh, the three-color wing is an indication of the destiny that is turning. And then right after that, destiny turns. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, your, uh, uh, the Germans infect you and is now forever past. Your hour is past. Mm-hmm. It's scary. <laughs> it's carefully crafted. 
Yeah, and you can tell um, he was a master writer. <laughs> yeah, they. Oh, God damn, propaganda is so interesting, and it's so, it's like it's a poison. It's a shit. Like it, it's it's a you can do so much with propaganda. It's not even fucking funny. Yeah. Well, I have a bit more propaganda for you. Oh, good. Good. And, uh, good. I like this one even more. I think um, it's a bit shorter. <laughs> so he dropped fifty thousand of the pamphlets that read what we just read, and then he also dropped another three hundred and fifty. Thousand oh, God. leaflets in German uh, that carried this message. This is what it said. Okay. Viennese, learn to know the Italians. We are flying over Vienna. We could drop tons of bombs. All we are dropping on you is the greetings of three colors. The three colors of liberty. We Italians do not make war on children, on old people, on women. We are making war on your government, the enemy of national liberties, on your blind, stubborn, cruel government that can give you neither peace nor bread and feeds you hatred and illusions. Mm. Viennese, you are famous for being intelligent, but why have you put on the Prussian uniform? By now, you see, the whole world has turned against you. You want to continue the war? Continue it. It's your suicide. What do you hope for? The decisive victory promised to you by the Prussian generals? Their decisive victory is like the bread of Ukraine. You die waiting for it. People of Vienna, think of your own fates. Wake up. Long live liberty. Long live Italy. Long live the Entente. Oh, that one's even stronger. Right? <laughs> Shit. Okay, so wait. Wait a second. Yeah. Um, where is Vienna? What country? It's Austria. Austria? Yeah. That's, see, that's brilliant. Because they're trying to stir up the, the old <clears throat> hatred between the German states again. Yeah. Yeah, um, <clears throat> why have you put on the Prussian uniform? Like, it's like, it's sort of making them out to be fools. Like, you were fooled thinking that you were, you know, unified or mm -hmm. whatever. Just, mm -hmm. like, wake the fuck up. They're not doing anything good for you. Well, and that's after um, you compliment them. He said, you are famous for being intelligent. Like, uh -huh. yeah. it's kind of guilt-tripping you. Well, it's not even that. It's it's saying, it's, it's blow, blowing up your ego. Yeah. It's saying, you're smarter than this. What the fuck are you doing? Exactly, you know? yeah. Like, uh, it's sort of like, uh, you know, sexy people smoke cigarettes, mm -hmm. right? And you're <laughs> super sexy, so you need to start smoking cigarettes. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, those were the ads way back in the day, right? Um, and that, that's kind of the ads for everything. Um, yeah. Because advertising is propaganda, everybody. But anyway, <laughs> uh, corporate propaganda. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, I love that. Um one, they put the fear of God in them. They're like, what, look, we're already in your skies over your city. We could yeah. be dropping bombs. But hey, we don't want to hurt you because we're not bad. It's your government exactly. that's getting you into this. Yeah. And that's the same kind of shit that was, that, you know, sparked the Russian Revolution in part. Sure. Um, to spark the, I should say, at least the anger against the Tsar. It was like, hey, look at your stupid king. He's got you in a war, you know? We just talked yeah. about this. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, so keep going. Sorry. So, well, anyway, so he, this whole, he flew to Vienna, the 700-mile round trip, came back, uh, and he was just an absolute fucking hero to the Italian public, because wow. he had flown literally into the heartland of the enemy and returned, and that's, I, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You there? Yeah. Okay. I'm there. Yeah. Oh, you just had no reaction. No Italian patriotism. I have no patriotism for Italians except for spaghetti. We're going to fun them so much. Anyway, I don't care. Well, what's not <laughs> What's uh, I mean, what's you've said mamma mia what 10 times this Mamma episode? mia. 
<laughs> yeah. That's the that's the extent of our Italian jokes. Yeah, it, it's fine. I mean, <laughs> Italian <Pasta> la vista. <laughs> It, All right, it's okay. Italians don't listen to podcasts, though. Uh, oh, because well, they're. You have to remember that Italian communication is at least sixty percent visual because of the hand motions. Oh right! And since <laughs> our podcast doesn't have those hand motions, or our most po- all podcasts really. Uh, Italians just don't listen to them because they don't understand uh, just pure auditory com- communication. Well, if I if I motion with my hands, I hit the hangers in my fucking closet all the time. So <laughs> yeah, um, someday we'll put out an Italian translation. And <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I'm tugging my collar right now. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no! I remember watching this. Uh, I watched this film called Bicycle Thieves with a whole bunch of, of woke film nerds and, oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, graduate studies students. And in the movie, like, it, they hired people on the streets to play people on the streets, right? Mm-hmm. And so they said, pretend you're an angry crowd. And it's amazing. Like, everyone's, like, doing that thing where they, you know, pinch their forefinger and, like, wiggle, like, extend it and then wave it at you, huh. right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and even these these woke and tolerant people were making fun of the Italians for using all those hands. <laughs> Jeez. I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I'm really sure funny. at some point on this podcast we'll get into the, the racism against Italians in the good old US of A. What? Oh, yeah. It's like the Poles or the Irish. Everyone I didn't hates the actually fucking Italians. know that. Yeah. Shit. There's a, there's a whole history of that. Slop. <laughs> well, God, now we've aligned ourselves with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. We're fucked. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking anyway. of being fucked. Um, oh, yes. After the war, Gabriel was really starting to embrace hardcore nationalism. And Good. he began spreading his view that Italy should become a world power after the war. Wait, hold on. What? After the war, uh-huh. he started embracing nationalism. Yeah. Well, during. During and after. Oh, that just doesn't make much sense to me. Why not? Let's discuss. Because wasn't it nationalism that got everyone into this shit in the first place? Uh, or just a really shitty family who had family members leading every major country Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, nationalism kind of sprang up during That's true. Before? Well, yeah. you ha- Way before. Yeah, yeah. You did. Well, it's kind of on both sides, because, of course, you had Bismarck uniting the nationalism of the German people. But at the same time, the Austria-Hungarian Empire was a whole bunch of different nationalities, and it started with Gavrilo Princip um, and the Serbians trying to, you know, push forth their nationalism. And that, they were the allies, of, um, which Italy was on as well. Man, I'm not using words <laughs> correctly. <laughs> of course. But I, I can see Gabriel having kind of sympathy for the Serbs and the, the Croats and the Hungarians and the Magyars and gotcha. the Bulgarians, all the people in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because um, that was, like, anti-nationalism. It was an empire. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll admit, I, I've forgotten almost everything I knew about the nationalist movement back in the day, so yeah. I need to brush up on that. Hardcore history. <laughs> hardcore history. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's hardcore history. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, the intro to the show is It's history And then I can't remember the next line 
<laughs> All right, let's carry on. Yeah. We're wasting too much time. All right, so he, he began believing that Italy should become a world power and that they should create a, a, a new Italian empire that incorporated all peoples and places that spoke Italian. Ah. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Um... After World War One ended, oh, I will say this though, it, it it has only been a few years that Italy's been united. I mean, um, because at the same time that Bismarck was uniting Germany, Italy Italy was being united by um, uh, shit, uh, Garibaldi, um, which we always right. forget because everyone knows about Bismarck in Germany. But at the same time, Italy was being united because they were a bunch of fractured states. Um, so Italy has not been around for that long at this point, so I can- I can definitely see where Gabriel's coming from, like, Look, the Italian people need to stand as one! <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's- it's interesting. It's understandable. Yeah. So, after World War One ended, the former Austria-Hungarian uh, Empire was being split up into new countries, uh, or being added to already existing countries. And upon entering the war, Italy had been promised all of the Austrian littoral, which was a province on the Adriatic coast. Uh, however, it was also understood that should the Allies win, the city of Fiume would not be given to the Italians. Are you following? Yeah, I'm, I'm barely following along here. Okay. I need, like, hold on. I gotta find... Right here. Oh. Okay, so... We don't have a document, everybody. No, we don't write this <laughs> shit. It's all memorized. So, I'll... Uh... I'll Bingo! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. I'll rephrase that. Uh, the Ita the Italians joined the Allies, and the Allies said, "Look, if you join us and help us win the war, we'll give you a part of the Austrian Empire, our enemy, right?" And they agreed okay. upon that, with the uh, understanding that the city of Fiume, which was in the Austrian Empire, would remain independent, so okay. Italy wouldn't get it. So that was all, all understood. Right. Um, uh, so after the war, the territory was passed over to Italian control, except, of course, the city of Fiume. So everything went as planned and as agreed upon. Everything was good. Gotcha. But do you know who was really upset by this? <laughs> Gabriel, I'm Our sure. boy Gabriel. He wanted the city of Fiume to be Italian, especially because 65% of the population of the city was Italian. So he's like, they shouldn't be an independent city, they should be part of Italy. Makes right. kind Makes of sense, sense, I guess. Uh, so Gabriel immediately went to the Italian government and complained that they were be that they were betraying their fellow Italians and basically handing over Fiume to the Croatians and the Serbs and the others living in the area. Hmm. But the Italian government assured him that this had all been a part of the agreements that were made early on in the war. But this right. wasn't good enough for Gabriel. <laughs> of course. Fiume and the honor of all of Italy had to be restored. <laughs> So this is where <sighs> things get crazy. <laughs> okay. So Gabriel gathers together about 2,600 Italian veterans from World War One, many of whom were still heavily suffering from shell shock and PTSD, and made them into his own highly devoted army to go and retake Fiume. <laughs> oh my god. And they did just that. Of course they did. <laughs> On September 12th, 1919, Gabriel and 2,600 Italian veterans stormed into Fiume, kicked out the British and French police forces who had been stationed there, and seized the city. Holy shit. Gabriel then announced that he, he had annexed Fiume for the Kingdom of Italy and asked the Italian government to accept his gift. Italy refused and promptly set up a naval blockade of the city and ordered Gabriel to surrender. Because uh, they're like, look, they, we gotta keep yeah. the agreement. <laughs> yeah, with the other we countries. gave our word, bro. Yeah. 
So Gabriel responded by declaring Fiume its own sovereign state with Gabriel oh. as its dictator. No! <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Wow. Here's the thing, because, like, taking that city and dishonoring that agreement with armed soldiers, mm -hmm. and it, the, the Italian government has literally, like, one way to avoid war, and that is to turn against Gabrielli. Yeah, exactly. Well, and they called they called him and his band, like, a bunch of deserters and r veteran refugees. Oh, God. And no one took it seriously except for Gabrielle and his guys. All right. Actually, there's more. Well, one second. We'll get into that. <laughs> All right. So, Gabriel, he declares Fiume its own sovereign state, and he's the dictator, but he doesn't call it dictator. He calls it commandant. Of course, of course. Yep. <laughs> and this new state was named the Italian Regency of Carnaro, named uh, after the Gulf of Carnaro in which the city was located. Uh, okay. And for, <laughs> for this country's short lifespan, only one other country ever recognized the Italian Regency of Carnaro as a sovereign state. Oh. Do you want to guess what country? <laughs> uh, yes. Germany. Nope. I was way off. It's the Soviet Union. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. That's amazing. Okay. All right. So let's talk a bit about the Italian Regency of Carnaro, led by Commandant Gabriel de Annunzio. Okay. To begin with, Carnaro did have a constitution, which is called the Charter of Carnaro, uh, which was an odd blend of anarchist proto-fascist and democratic ideals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the charter is long as ass, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it is on Wikisource if you want to read it. Um, okay. <laughs> and I've included some of my favorite bits here. Uh, so, right. how the charter opens is uh, this. Fiume, for centuries a free commune of ancient Italy, declared her full and complete surrender to the mother country on October 10th, 1918. Her claim is threefold, like the impenetrable armor of Roman legend. Oh, shit. And then that intro closes with, Thus, in the name of a new Italy, the people of Fiume, taking their stand on justice and on liberty, swear that they will fight to the utmost with their whole strength against any attempt to separate their land from the mother country, and that they will defend forever the mountain boundary of their country assigned to it by God and by Rome. Oh, good. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so notice here the ties with ancient Rome. Mm. And Gabriel was really one of the first to do this in the 20th century, is tie Italy back to its Roman roots. Mm. Which another Italian guy named Mussolini, who's come up later, he really uh, he <laughs> took that and flew with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about Mussolini, I'll be honest. I mean, I know some vague shit about him, but... Well, we'll cover him a bit in this episode, but... Okay, we'll definitely sounds good. Uh, he was the fascist leader of Italy during... The I knew that. Time. Okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So, going on with the charter, the, f the next few sections are pretty normal for a constitution, guaranteeing things like religious freedom, freedom of the press, a national bank, and a guarantee that gender shall make no difference in the civil realm. So, good things. Um, mm -hmm. And then it says other good things, like... Whatever be the kind of work a man does, whether of hand or brain, art or industry, design or execution, <laughs> he must be a member of one of the ten corporations. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Gotta be a party member. Yep, exactly. All right. So, ten corporations kind of make up the state. And these corporations were the industrial and agricultural workers, the seafarers, the employers... 
the industrial and agricultural technicians, the private bureaucrats and administrators, the teachers and students, the lawyers and doctors, the civil right. servants, and then, of course, the corporation that Gabriel himself belonged to, the Corporation of Superior Individuals, oh, which mostly no. included poets, heroes, and other supermen. Ah. Uh. And each corporation was sovereign over its own, but had to work with the other corporations in order to influence the government and country as a whole. So they were kind of a mix between a political party and a giant-ass union. I have... That is really... All right, carry it's on. It's kind of scary. <laughs> it's a little bit... Yeah. <laughs> uh, then the charter goes on, it becomes democratic, and it uh, there's a bunch of rules set forth for legislative, judicial, and executive branches, so that's good, I guess. Then there's a section entitled The Commandant, and basically, if the country is under great threat and only one man can save the country, the National Council can give him full power in order to save the country. And this oh, included, we're getting a little bit Athenian here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, and this included full political, military, legislative, and executive power for as long as the council gave him. Mm, so, Athenian, wow. and especially, like, the Roman Republic... Um, because the Roman Republic, in times of great distress and war, would elect dictators, which was not a negative term as it is today. That's right, just what same with called. tyrant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the and the dictators or tyrants would have full power to deal with uh, the enemy. Right. And uh, one of the most famous dictators of ancient Rome was Cincinnatus, which Cincinnati is named after. <laughs> uh, great guy, great story. <laughs> we'll get oh, into him God. some other day. Yeah, we should. Yeah. So, uh, going on, for national defense, all citizens of both sexes, from ages 17 to 55, oh. are liable for military service. <laughs> so, kind Shit. of fascist. Yeah! <laughs> but then it goes total libertarian, because in times of peace, there is no army, and everybody just goes home with their guns. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. Uh, then there's some things about schooling, reforms, blah blah blah. Ah, oh, yes, and then the entire charter finishes with the section of music. In the Italian province of Carnaro, music is a social and religious institution. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it goes on to say, As cock crow heralds the dawn, so music is the herald of the soul's awakening. Meanwhile, uh, in the instruments of labor, of profit, and of sport, in the noisy machines which, even they, fall into poetical rhythm, music can find her motives and her harmonies. In the pauses of music is heard the silence of the Tenth Corporation. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's basically Sound of Music meets Bioshock. <laughs> Alright, good. Uh, <laughs> and this goes on to say that every commune and province in Fiume will have a government-subsidized choir. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. Beautiful. Uh, so that's it for the charter for now. Uh, so oh, how well did Gabriel's country of the Italian Regency of Carnaro fare? Uh, great, right? Not well. <laughs> oh, fuck. It lasted a bit over a year. Of course. <laughs> In November oh. of 1920, Italy signed the Treaty of Rapallo with the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, which guaranteed that Fiume would be its own independent state, just like gotcha. they had all agreed upon. Right, right. But remember that our boy Gabriel didn't want Fiume to be independent, he wanted Italy to annex it. Right. So what should Gabriel do now that his little country was allowed to be independent and not instead made a part of Italy like he wanted it to be? 
declare war on Italy, of course. <laughs> of course. Thus, the Italian regency of Canaro rallied her soldiers, called Fiumen Legionnaires. Okay. And another Roman tie. And the mm. war began. And it lasted like a month. <laughs> <laughs> Italy sent over her navy, and they just bombed the city while the Fiomen legionnaires were unable to retaliate. Soon thereafter, Gabriel surrendered the city and left, and Fiome would remain independent for a few more years until finally it was annexed by Italy, which was what Gabriel had wanted this whole goddamn time. Right. So he kind of won, in a sense. <laughs> so after Gabriel tried to expand Italy, and then fought Italy, and then lost to Italy... He moved back to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> he loves that country. Yeah, and he was absolutely welcomed by the Italian public, who still loved the shit out of this guy, because he would just not back down for anything. Right. Uh, and it was now that Gabriel retired to a lake home and did a lot of political writing and campaigning. So hmm. let's talk about Gabriel's politics a bit. Here we go. He was basically the father of fascism. <laughs> right, right. And actually, more acutely, he has been compared as the John the Baptist of Italian <laughs> fascism, with Benito Mussolini being the Jesus of Italian fascism. <laughs> Fair enough. So All right. let's dissect this a bit more. Um, while Gabriel was ruling the Italian regency of Carnaro, he did things like... Passionate balcony addresses to the crowd below, later directly mirrored by Mussolini... Right. Also, he used and encouraged others to use the Roman salute, which we today know better as the Nazi salute. Oh, God. Because it's the same thing, and this is where it comes from. Uh, fascisms and Gabriel's ties with ancient Rome, which is very interesting. Uh, he Another thing, he and his followers used the cry, Ia, 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 Alala, which was Achilles' war cry in the Iliad, and would later become basically the party cry for Italian fascism. What does it mean? I don't... I couldn't find what it actually means. It might just be a cry. Oh. I looked it up, and everyone was just like, oh, it's just what Achilles said in the Iliad. Oh, okay. And I don't know. So it's a sound... Yeah. Interesting. So other ties with fascism. Uh, he used a religious... Well, hold up there. Uh-huh. Look at the reput repetition there. Yeah. That reminds me of Sieg Heil. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Sieg yeah. Heil, Sieg Heil. Yeah, for sure. Because they say it over and over again doing the Roman salute. Yeah. Oh, boy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, okay, start to see some ties. Yeah. Uh, he mm. also used religious symbols as secular symbols. Of course. So think of the cross and how that was just turned into, like, a symbol of fascism. Uh, next, remember that over 2,000 Italian World War I vets had helped Gabriel take over his country. Well, many of these soldiers were Arditi, which was basically the special forces of the Italian military. And Gabriel thanked their loyalty by having them dress in black. Oh. Gabriel called them his black shirts, and they quickly became basically his secret police, and would use strong arm and oppression to keep the peace. Wow. Which, of course, Mussolini would directly replicate with his black shirts, and later mm -hmm. Hitler would replicate with his brown shirts. Right. Uh, yeah, Gabriel brown. started that. Mm. Um, uh, that shirt business is coming back. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Next, he also may have possibly been the inventor of the castor oil torment. Uh, oh. Which I had never heard of before. But basically, it was a method used by Mussolini's black shirts years later. And this torture was instilled by forcing an individual to drink large amounts of castor oil which sometimes made the drinker essentially 
essentially shit themselves to death. Oh! It's horrific. Oh and my god! If not death, then just intense intestinal pain uh, and utter humiliation. Well, who was he persecuting? Uh, <laughs> minorities. <laughs> what? It's it's really sad because his constitution guarantees basically people of all races uh, a place in uh, whatever little country he had. Um, mm -hmm. But later, he had his black shirts um, torment and torture minorities in order to bring together the majority. Oh. Which we've seen before. <laughs> Why torture them? I got. We have gotta... to have an enemy. Yeah, it's. Oh, Christ. The good thing is, is he only ruled for a year, so we didn't really see the full implementation of all his ideas. Um, right. But it's amazing. You get the hints of Hitler and Mussolini later on down the road. Wait, was this shit he was doing in the in his little country? Yeah. 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 It was the Italian Regency of Carnaro. Yeah. All right. Wow. Fuck. And this he also guy. he also wrote about this later on. Um, he wrote more about fascism. Uh, another thing he believed in was he also thought that Italy should expand and maybe even expand into Africa, such as Libya and Ethiopia, which of course Mussolini did just a few years later. Yeah. Uh, so at about this time in Italy, the fascist party was really starting to take off, and the fascists, of course, all loved Gabriel de Annunzio who was a war hero, a nationalist, a patriot, and a genius. Uh, well, right. they thought... He, he claimed he was a genius. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but uh. they also loved this rising star Italian dude by the name of Benito Mussolini. There he is! Yeah. Thus, and this this will remind you of star, or, um, Lenin and Trotsky, like the old guard and the new guard. Oh, Christ, um, okay. Because Mussolini was the young, hip guy... And Gabriel was just this old crotchety man, and yeah, yeah. So the the fascist party was torn between which guy they wanted to lead. It seems that yeah. Gabriel didn't really want the power, uh, and he never really identified as a fascist either. But he was really happy with the amount of attention and praise he was getting from them. Uh, but Mussolini and his followers were uneasy about how much Gabriel, how much power Gabriel had. Mm. Thus, one day, Gabriel was sitting in the upper levels of his lake house, and somebody came up behind him, grabbed him, and threw him out of a window. What the fuck? <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's a really unreliable way to kill somebody. I mean, unless it's a really high building. Yeah. Yeah. So Gabriel survived the fall, but took quite a bit of time to recover, and it's still a mystery as to who this man was or whom he worked for, but most clues seem to lead back to Mussolini. That doesn't surprise me. Although there's also some evidence that nobody pushed Gabriel out the window. He instead just got really drunk and stumbled out. <laughs> <laughs> Either story is good. <laughs> I love it. Yep. All right. Either way, Gabriel was out of Mussolini's way for the time being, and Mussolini soon took control of Italy. Uh, Mussolini then enacted a system of regular bribes paid to Gabriel in order to keep him out of politics. And when asked about this by one of his friends, Mussolini, Mussolini responded, When you have a rotten tooth, you have two possibilities open to you. Either you pull the tooth out, or you fill it with gold. With Annunzio, I have chosen for the latter treatment. Wow. Yeah. That, I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, either yank it out or fill it with gold. And it's, yep. I mean, it, I, when I say I like it, I mean it's clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Uh, so still, Gabriel continued to dabble in politics here and there, and while being somewhat of a supporter of Mussolini, Gabriel did not like Hitler or the Germans. Really? Well, it kind of makes sense because he fought against them. Well, not right. Well, I guess Hitler kind of. Um, yeah, but he did not like it. And in 1933, he wrote to Mussolini trying to convince him to not ally with Hitler in the Axis Pact. And that was in 1933, eight years before World War One or World War Two began in Europe. Right. And when this was ignored, Gabriel tried to get in between the relationship of Hitler and Mussolini by writing a satire pamphlet about Hitler. Oh! Which I was not able to find, unfortunately. Oh, shit. Throwing shade! I know. Mm. Finally, in 1937, Gabriel met with Mussolini in person and begged him to leave the Axis alliance. But it was not until 1944, on the verge of his death and Italian defeat, that Mussolini admitted that he had made a mistake in not following Gabriel's advice. Oh, man. Yep. And that mm. is where we'll leave Gabriele de Annunzio until we return to his end and death. Nice. Yep. That went weird. <laughs> it was a really weird story. <laughs> this is all over the fucking place. I know. I know. Um... Shit. Okay, so I guess we'll move over to John Bellingham's end in death. Sounds good. Alright, so when we left John Bellingham, he was in jail for the murder of Prime Minister Percival. Mm. And Bellingham had decided to present his own defense. Interesting. Um, he's also pleading not guilty, and the insanity plea has been thrown out, which actually makes him really happy. Hmm. Um, because, according to him, he committed the killing, but it was justified, so it was therefore not murder, and he didn't want to be seen as insane. He wanted to be seen as, like, righteous. <laughs> yeah. So here's a quote. Um, his, it's from his formal statement. To the court. Mm -hmm. um, uh, recollect, gentlemen, what was my situation. Recollect that my family was ruined and myself destroyed, merely because it was Mr. Percival's pleasure that justice should not be granted. Sheltering himself behind the imagined security of his station and trampling upon right and law in the belief that no retribution could reach him. I demand only my right and not a favor. I demand what is the birthright and privilege of every Englishman. Gentlemen, when a minister sets himself above the laws as Mr. Percival did, he does not. He does it at his own personal risk. Uh, maybe Percival risk. <laughs> if this were not so, the mere will of the minister would become the law. And what then would become of your liberties? I trust that this serious lesson will operate as a warning to all future ministers, and that we will henceforth do the right, the thing that is right. For if the upper ranks of society are permitted to act wrong with impunity, the inferior ramifications will soon become wholly corrupted. Hmm. Gentlemen, my life is in your hands. I, all, I rely confidently in your justice. Wow. Yeah. What do you think of that? I kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's saying, like, if you fuck the people over and think you can get away with it, well, think again. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, oh. I mean, I guess that's the essence of a political assassination. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, so uh, the defense didn't work. <laughs> 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 because, you know, he still was a murderer. Yeah. Um, and I think he kind of got the sense that it wouldn't work. He was going to be a martyr for this cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the jury deliberated for like 15 minutes before coming back with a guilty verdict. Um, and he got the death sentence, and he said nothing. He just sat in silence. Mm. And uh, he was like recorded as being like pretty stone-faced about the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, really, really, well, he seemed to have a clear conscience. Yeah. I mean, he was he was sentenced to hanging and subsequent dissection, which was kind of 
interesting. They were going to use him for medical purposes, I believe. Um, yeah, well, he's a criminal. But yeah, so he, on the 18th of May, uh, 1912, um, he's, like I said, he seemed to have a clear conscience mm-hmm. because a clergyman was brought to him to ask him to repent, but he refused. He didn't believe he'd done anything wrong. Yeah. Um, he was still convinced he was innocent of any real crime, and he believed that uh, he would see heaven that day, even though he gunned down the prime minister. Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah, and here's an, here's an interesting thing. Uh, when he was walked up to the gallows, he was completely unafraid and unfaltering, and the crowd wept on his death. Wow. Huh. How about that? Like, when you think about executions, public executions back in the day, it's usually like, yeah, kill him, and it's a spectacle and all yeah. this shit, and everyone's celebrating the death of this criminal. I mean, um, and people crying at the death of this assassin. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think the thing that stands out the most about this is, and sh- sure, we don't have all the facts, but to me, like, we've studied other assassins on this show, and they're either, like, super political radicals. Like, I mean, in our first episode, Booth was just a total Southern sympathizer. Um, or otherwise, they're uh, they're lunatics. They're just crazy people. Like that other guy we covered, I can't remember his name. Um, shit. Charles Gateau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a lunatic, exactly. But Bellingham seems just like a normal, a normal guy who really. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was. I don't think it was justified to kill the prime minister, but he had reason to be angry, and I respect him for living with his choices. I I respect the principles. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean not to. Not to glorify an assassin, um, but it wasn't like he killed the guy and then ran away. Yeah, you know, like like uh, what was his or uh, like Wilkes Booth did. Yes, like I read the whole book about on Manhunt, and he was like he shot the guy and then got the fuck out of there and was like planning to go back to the south and restart the war or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like he was a he. This guy was not a coward. He was just like, I need to make a point. And if I have to die to do it, I'll die to do it. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. yeah. And if his story is is true, he really did get fucked by his country. Like, it is the country's duty to look out for its citizens abroad. And if you just cut off ties with Russia without worrying about your citizens who might be there in a prison, eh, there's reason to be mad, reason to be angry about that. Yep, there is. Yeah. There definitely is. And, and then he went to the fucking DMV, and the guy was yeah. like, do your worst. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mr. Hill. Yeah, Mr. Hill, what a fucking bastard. Yeah. Um, there was one other quote I wanted to read. Uh, this comes from a Frenchman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about the, the, the feelings of the large crowd that was around his, his uh, around the gallows, basically. Yeah. And this was his thoughts on it. Farewell, poor man. You owe satisfaction to the offended laws of your country. But God bless you. You have rendered an important service to your country. You have taught ministers that they should do justice and grant audience when it is asked of them. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that the whole crowd was on his side. Yeah. It shows a lot of um, anger. <laughs> yeah. Really, it does. Um, it's a tumultuous time, and I'm hoping next time we get into the Industrial Revolution, I can give it a little more coverage. Great. Uh, yeah. yeah, I felt kind of shitty to leave out so much, but... Oh, it's like a teaser. 
I, I yeah, like to, it's a teaser. Yeah. We'll get there. I mean, oh, we're, we're sure. gonna, it's not like we're just going to drop it and never come back. No. Um, well, so anyway, this, this episode's going to be really long anyway, so. It's true. Yeah. Which I didn't expect because I, you know, I didn't write, or not write, I didn't come up with that much. I've had some good good talking. Good talking. Yep. Uh, speaking of talking, how about we go over to Gabriele D'Annunzio's end in death. Perf! Yeah! Okay. <laughs> when we last left Gabriel de Annunzio, he was kind of going down that fascist path. Varus? What? I'm just saying Varus. Oh. Check off that <laughs> Pop-Tart, kids. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's not too much more to it. Uh, in 1924, he was made a noble by the King of Italy. <laughs> it, oh, okay. Uh, in 1937, he was made president of the Royal Academy of Italy. Okay, too. Uh, he spent much of his time turning his home into essentially a giant temple for himself. Of course. With a big-ass <laughs> garden as well. <laughs> Mussolini even sent him an entire prow of a battleship just to stick in his garden. <laughs> Come on! I know. Jesus Christ. Come on. Okay. Gabriel also had flowers on his bed, and he changed them three times a day. <laughs> Had them changed or changed them himself? Probably had them changed. Okay, I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, in 1938, he died in his home of a stroke on March 1st, 1938, at the age of 74. Although, he may not have died of a stroke. Oh! He may actually have been poisoned by his girlfriend at the time, who turned out to be a fucking Nazi agent. <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> so we don't oh really know. Oh, my God. <laughs> But regardless of how he died, he was given a big-ass state funeral by then-Prime Minister Mussolini, and then buried in a giant white marble tomb. Oh, wow. Okay, that's now, classic, though. Yeah. Now, today, Gabriele de Annunzio is actually usually best known for his literature. Um, Interesting. He has almost a dozen novels, several plays and tragedies, a buttload of poetry, short story <laughs> collections, and several autobiographical biographical works as well. Oh. And he's often admired for basically breathing life back into the scene of Italian literature, which apparently had been dumbed down into the same themes and tropes at the time, apparently. Oh. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for the silent film Cabiria? Would you know? Cabiria. Do you know yeah. anything about that? Maybe Cabiria. I don't know. It was based on the Second Punic War, and the whole thing is on YouTube. I watched part oh, of it. okay. It was kind of fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he he's also remembered as being a mix between a hero and a playboy, whom was adored by the public, but was never really marred by his association with fascism. Huh. And I gotta say, I certainly don't hate the guy. Like, I don't agree with him on pretty much anything. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't agree with the treatment of minorities that or women or uh, yeah or fascism. But at the same time, he's kind of charming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like the whole flying over Vienna thing. Exactly, like, yeah. I don't know. It's, um, he's a, it's a complicated topic, that is for sure. I, I think I think it's kind of like this. If we were just given the early the early years of Mussolini or Stalin or something like that, we would be like, oh, maybe that guy did have potential. He did seem sort of charismatic. Yeah. And it, I think it's the same with Gabriel. Like, we didn't see... He was... I mean, he was older than he was in his late 50s by the time he did anything really fascist so we it's never true. got to see how it played out that much um and who knows if he was younger it's know. interesting that uh an artist yeah got an artist 
by the way, mm-hmm. got sucked into fascism. Yeah. Yeah. That seems unlikely. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of books on him. Uh, well, it's but it's also like fascism was like the new thing back then. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So it also doesn't surprise me that an artist would get sucked into that because mm-hmm. artists like new things typically. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Tell me more. Uh, a few odd, odd facts. Uh, there are rumors that he had eaten the flesh of children. What the fuck? Uh, and he actually <laughs> helped spread these rumors around, even though they were probably oh. just rumors. So they were just made, okay, got it. Uh, there was right. also a rumor that he had several of his ribs removed so that he could suck his own pee-pee. What the fuck? <laughs> no! <laughs> yep. <laughs> Impossible. Uh, well, there's a rumor. Okay. <laughs> uh, and this is true. When the Mona Lisa was stolen in 1911, for some reason, Gabriel went out and told the public that it was in his house. Oh? It was not in his house. Of course it was. <laughs> He's Come on. just a charismatic guy who loves attention. A narcissist. Wow. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and to finish, here are a couple of his quotes that kind of sum him up well. Number one. You must create your life as you'd create a work of art. It's necessary that the life of an intellectual be artwork with him as the subject. True superiority is all here. At all costs, you must preserve liberty to the point of intoxication. The rule for an intellectual is this. Own. Don't be owned. Which, okay. <laughs> it sounds like Andrew Ryan from Bioshock. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Uh, uh. Another one. It is not necessary to live, but to carve our names beyond that point. This is necessary. Huh. So his legacy. So he's saying, carve your legacy into yeah. the future. Mm. I cannot understand why the poets of our day wax indignant at the vulgarity of their age and complain of having come into the world too early or too late. I believe that every man of intellect can create his own beautiful fable of life. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of um, like that one. Yeah, I like that one, because I've heard people say I was born too early or born too late. Yeah. Um, And then finally, this is his most famous quote. Limit to courage? There is not limit to courage. Well, (laughs) is he right? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Wow. Well, interesting fella. Yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, real real interesting guy there. Um, uh, Hmm. I gotta say, mm-hmm. I gotta say, I was, I was aroused. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. Okay. I'll quit there. Um, I'm not even sure what to discuss about that because I that was so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But well, I don't know. We'll leave you think it we should to the, the surface. Write it up. What? Tattoo it on your <laughs> arm. I asked you a question. Yes. Do you think it's time to head to the surface? So, James, Mm -hmm. tell me, Mm. what are you going to do for the rest of the day? Ah, okay. Well, I've got a pocket knife. Oh. And I'm going to... Use that knife to rip up all this shag carpet in the closet, and then I'll carry it downstairs, wring all of the sweat out of it, collect uh, that sweat sweat in an inflatable swimming pool, dive in, and absorb the sweat back into my body. <laughs> because it's important to be hydrated. 
And yeah, yes, of course. It of is. Course. It is something I stand for. Yes, or lie down for, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. No. What about you? What do you think you're going to be doing? Uh, I'm going to be editing this episode <laughs> furiously because um, I have work today. Oh. And then I need to eat something because I am fucking starving right now. Um, well, but I recommend something for you. Yes. I would try three juicy and delectable junior <laughs> breakfast burritos from Burger King. I don't know if I have time to go get Burger King. It's basically got- lard in a burrito. Okay. Well, I do have lard and I do have burrito wraps. Perfect. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate tweets to we topic uh, WTADP podcast. That's our handle on Twitter. Uh, that's WTADP podcast. We will read all of them and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash We Talk About Dead People. 50 bucks, 20 bucks, even as little as a dollar. As much as it costs to buy James for the night helps tremendously. I forgot to put that down. <laughs> You can buy James for a night for one dollar. Uh, our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the Industrial Revolution play you out. I got smog in my throat. I've got smog in my throat. I'm gonna die in a British warship. But that's all for king and country. That was wanting. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But well done anyway. (laughs) All right, I'm hitting stop. Me too.